Josh and I um, are not shorthanded. I mean, we'll do just fine, but the Rev is um, not taking care of family, but rather um, traveling with the rich and famous of corporate upper-level management. Josh nor I are cup corporate upper-level management. Right, Josh? No, sir. So we're here doing the Lord's work. That's right. This morning while they're out um, gallivanting the countryside in hot pursuit of larger profits <laughs> and more and more revenue. The owners of community broadcasters, and yeah, there you go, the, the, the owners of community broadcasters, one guy's from New York, one's from Boston. They have um, bought clusters of stations in varying markets that they consider to be in growth mode. South Carolina would be one of those. Florida would be um, one of those. They are unbelievably committed to local radio. But that's kind of what they um, their, their claim to fame, so to speak, is being the commitment in a in an era and age where people are divest, divesting themselves of some of the um, some of the local talent, local. Um, in other words, you know, warm bodies in a studio, warm bodies in an office complex. They're farming the majority of that out. I don't want to call people by name, but two corporate radio entities in particular have really not frowned upon. That's unfair, but they've not invested. Um, human capital in some of these um, secondary markets. These companies are all about 10 or 12 or 15 markets in America. We ain't one of the 10 or 12 or 15 markets in America. So community broadcasters came in and found some of these secondary markets that they thought were uh, potentially, um, you know, growing and not not just invested in the the radio infrastructure, but put boots on the ground, so to speak. Real people doing real jobs in real studios very foreign uh, in today's radio. And once a year, they have a uh, a management summit, so to speak, in one of our um, more liberal northeastern cities. But that's where Rev and a couple of others here from, from South Carolina and community broadcasters have made their way. We'll mind the fort. We'll do the best we can. Um, I've prepared Josh. I told him, hey, you got to be ready today because it's, uh, it's kind of game on. Josh, I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, Josh would like to one day host a radio show. I mean, that's kind of the um, the career path that you'd like to be. I don't have any idea why, but, you know, have at it. Um, <laughs> getting up at 4.30 in the morning is a – it's a um, – uh, I didn't say a morning show. Okay, fair so. enough. Uh, <laughs> a little bit selective in your in your uh, time slot there. But, but no, in, in all seriousness, I told Josh this morning that we're going to um, – we're going to get, go down the road that we've not gone down yet. I'm not talking about SEC expansion. I'm not talking about Big Ten expansion. I had our – uh, the bad boy of sports radio, uh, our ESP and sports show host, another warm body in a in a local studio talking about local um, local sports and athletics. He and I were sharing a text yesterday with a couple of others about California and Stanford being admitted into the ACC. The ACC is in expansion mode. Um, it's just a crazy world out there right now in college athletics. Um, as a Gamecock fan, we're normally scrambling. This is the one time that I'm thinking about in my history as a Gamecock fan that I like where we are. Strategically, long-term, I like exactly where South Carolina is. Now, once again, they called a break when the SEC decided to expand. Um, they went to Tallahassee, and Bobby Bowden said, I don't know if I want to get roughed up in that league. You know, I think I'd like to stay uh, where I am, and you know, there's a better chance I win 11 games and championships in this league than there is in that league, I'm not saying it was short-sighted, but it was very self-serving. I mean, I, I doubt Bowden saw the SEC network and conference realignment saying television contracts being a billion dollars. Uh, but the Gamecocks got lucky. 
they were extended an invitation along with Arkansas in, I think, 1992 to become a member of the Southeastern Conference. I mean, it was a big day in SEC sports, excuse me, in USC sports, but I don't think we looked at it as the financial end all. I mean, it was a chance to become a part of a uh, a deep-rooted cultural and regional athletic force. It turned into one of the most lucrative decisions financially the university had ever made uh, because, once again, these big football brands, um, next thing you know, A&M's in the conference. And now Oklahoma and Texas are coming in into the league. Uh, I'm not saying the Gamecocks have been along for the ride. I think they pulled their weight to some degree, but they've not been Alabama or Georgia or Florida. But they've not been a dead weight. They've not been a deadbeat in the conference. They won a couple of baseball championships, the all-important women's college basketball championship. Uh, they, won, they won one of those and competed for several others. Um, but they have trailed a bit in football, especially during the Muschamp era. But the Spurrier era was, um, you know, beneficial to the to the SEC and USC. And now it looks like Shane Beamer has a chance to, you know, do a little, do a little better than than Muschamp did. Um, so it's, I mean, they've not been a deadbeat. They've not been dead weight. But, but I was thinking about, you know, Clemson normally has the advantage. It just, you know, the, the SEC says it just means more. Maybe it does. But to Clemson, nothing means more than that brand, that football program, that Paul on, on in the end zones or on center court. I mean, they, they've just, they've done an unbelievable job at investing in and preserving that brand. Clemson football is, um, it, I mean, that, that, I don't say the university sinks or swims with Clemson football, but it's the, uh, but it's the, um, it's top of the food chain. No question about it. And um, a little bit like Alabama, a little bit like, uh, thing, you, know, you know, the majority of SEC schools are, are centered around their football program. A few, um, like my beloved Gamecocks, try to be a bit cosmopolitan. But, um, but anyway, Clemson, I don't want to say they're scrambling, but they're, they're, there's a lot of uncertainty there. I mean, I, I would imagine people at Clemson know a lot more than I do. I would expect that to be the case. So they know where they stand with the SEC. They know where they stand uh, with the Big Ten. But for the first time in a long time, I'm watching my arch rival kind of scramble a bit, finding a um, finding a soft place or a good place to land. I mean, it may stay in the ACC. I don't know. The ACC may endure. Um, it looks to me like the Big Ten will be the eventual uh, landing place of Clemson and Florida State. Um, that that that's kind of an invasion into the geographic territory of the SEC. And I got to believe once that happens, the ACC really starts to reel. And the SEC looks at North Carolina and Virginia. I mean, I said that yesterday. I just believe that the SEC has always believed the most fertile soil to grow is North Carolina, Virginia. I mean, it's southern states. It's big states. Both states have in excess of 10 million people. If you could go pluck off a UNC or an NC State or Virginia or Virginia Tech or maybe both, some combination of two of those schools or, or all four of those schools, you've really solidified yourself as – I don't want to say, I mean, I guess the Big Ten would argue we're the elite conference, we're the national conference from from sea to shining sea, so to speak. But I just think there's so much to like about the SEC if if that domino um, falls, if that shoe drops, if that's the move that the Big Ten, Clemson, and Florida State make. Because if Florida State and Clemson leave the uh, the ACC, I mean, the ACC is reeling. I mean, it's, that's kind of the snowball rolling um, downhill. Clemson football is as big a brand as there is in the ACC. But North Carolina basketball is bigger. I mean, it just is. North Carolina basketball is probably the biggest brand in all of the ACC. We shall see. Um, I've always had, uh, Josh, I've always had, as an SEC fan, 
I've always had a keen interest in NC State. Mm-hmm. I just think NC State, somewhat like South Carolina, uh, a sleeping giant. I mean, <laughs> why have they not done better than they've done? I mean, it's in a, uh, a, a state in excess of 10 million people. The state's capitals, Raleigh. NC State's a big university with a big donor base. I mean, it doesn't have the brand of North Carolina, uh, but it, I, I've just always felt that NC State coming into the SEC would be good for the SEC, would be phenomenal for NC State. I mean, I get you give up the Tobacco Road historical rivalries. Our, um, our trivia question yesterday, the ACC had seven original members. Two aren't any longer members, Maryland and, and South Carolina. Um, NC State would be one of those. I just, just, I mean, what do you think of the ACC? You think of Tobacco Road? You think of NC State? But I still believe that NC State coming to the SEC is good for the SEC. Phenomenal phenomenal for NC State. But we'll see how that how that shakes out. Um, I want to go back to, to politics, and I want to read something verbatim, and I want Josh, and I want you to help me. Because jo- Josh and I had a preliminary conversation before we went on the air about Trump. And I read some polling yesterday that about half of the Trump supporters don't really like the guy. Do you like hmm. Donald Trump or not? I mean, it didn't say how much on a scale of 1 to 10. I mean, it was a simple yes or no. Do you like Donald Trump or not? Um, no, I don't like Donald Trump. Yes, I do like Donald Trump. So if, if Trump is the the perennial front runner in the Republican primary and Trump seems to be uh, the inevitable nominee of the Republicans, Biden looks like, you know, I mean, right now it looks to be, I mean, if you were a betting man, you'd bet on Biden being the nominee. I mean, I understand the uncertainty. I understand the health issues. I understand the cognitive decline. I understand the Hunter Biden Joe Biden storyline. I mean, I get, I get. There's a lot of things kicking over there uh, with an 80 year old, you know, man in cognitive decline. But but let's stay with Trump for a second. Uh, forget the Democrats. If we don't much like Trump, but he's the the eventual nominee. I mean, once again, I hate to use the word. Um, we'll say likely. I mean, he's the likely nominee. That's a fair word. I think you're nodding your head. Yeah. I mean, he's the likely nominee. Uh, it's not inevitable. Robert Haley said Friday, man, I don't like using the word inevitable because I've seen so many crazy things happen that you didn't see coming. But but Trump is not a very liked man, but but unbelievably likely that he becomes the nominee of the 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 two party system, one of the major parties in America. Um, what is the idea of Trump? I mean, if you're if you don't like the guy, but you're voting for him and you're a loyal supporter, and I'm talking about personally. I mean, let's do this personally and politically. I mean, I like Trump politically. I don't much like him personally. Now, I've had to form an opinion from afar, like we do with most famous people. I mean, you you don't know. uh, I don't know Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I'm a big fan of Springsteen. He may be the biggest jerk in the world. I don't know. They've always told me, be careful wanting to meet your heroes. Be careful wanting to meet people you look up to. They'll probably let you down, truth be known. Um, you know, I, I, who was it? I, I, I had a friend of mine who met someone that they held in high regard. And he said, man, he was everything I thought he would be and more nicest guy in the world. You know, the most pleasant person in the world, most humble guy you'd ever want to meet. I don't think anybody believes that Trump is that. I mean, he's got all these personality and character traits that, you know, a lot of Americans find not revolting, but not, not endearing. I mean, they're just not, he said, let me ask you a question, Josh. Yeah. Do you think Trump is humble? No. Is he narcissistic? 
Yes. Is he somewhat egotistical? Same thing here, but I mean, absolutely. Is he? Is he? Um, can you imagine a arrogant. scenario? Oh, that, that, there's another word, arrogant. Um, is he a? Um, is he? Is he more of a giver than a taker? No. I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, there are a lot of characteristics about Trump that aren't endearing to you nor I. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were probably raised similarly to one another. Certain attributes of humanity. You respect others. You're like, wow, dude, you could do better um, than that. But but the idea of Trump, the idea of Trump is something that we have become so committed to, unbelievably committed to. The media has tried for eight years, since 2015, the media has tried to drive a wedge between Trump and his supporters, and they failed miserably. In fact, I mean, I read polling, in fact, Trump, probably has as much support today as he's ever had at any time in his political life. Now, now will he win the presidency in 2024? Uh, don't know. Don't have any idea. I think it's 50-50. I think he has a very legitimate chance to be reelected president of the United States, but it's not the man. It's not the likability factor. Do I know you? Do I like you? Um, you had kind of an interesting uh, perspective. If If Trump is not, if we aren't, supportive of the man that mm-hmm. is Trump. What is the concept? What, what is the idea? Um, why are so many people intrigued, um, highly supportive, committed, um, unwavering in their support of this guy that a lot of us don't much care for? Josh's theory is... Right. So I think that Trump is all the things we've you've said he is. He's arrogant. He's he's not humble, but that doesn't necessarily equal bad in all cases. So I think that a lot of people these days are risk averse and conflict averse. You know, they they want to just keep the peace rather than stand their ground on certain things, even even in just minor situations. It's like, oh, this guy at work annoys me, but I don't want to make a big fuss about it. I just want I just want to get through the day. And I think that when someone comes on the scene who is abrasive and, uh, you know, they, they state their opinion no matter what, there's something attractive about that to the modern-day person. You know, I don't know what life was like 200 years ago, but I, I have this sense that it wasn't like how it is today. I think people said what they thought and they did what they believed in general. And I think that has kind of been suppressed a little bit in the modern day, whether it's technology, who knows. But I think so characters, I think I told you this before, I think you're like that to a certain extent. Now, I think you're, you know, you're humble. I I, I wouldn't compare you to Trump to that degree, but I think you're very open about your opinion. And if, if someone came in here, you know, like Jeff comes on, I think if you worked with Jeff, you would still have those conversations. You wouldn't suppress your opinion for the sake of keeping the peace so trump doesn't walk on eggshells and society almost requires us to exactly society rewards us if we walk on eggshells if we're nervous to talk about this or that i think you're right i mean if i work beside jeff we'd argue all day oh yeah i think we could go have a beer yeah i think we'd go to go to a ball game i don't despise anybody i don't hate anybody i think that's an interesting take josh i really think that you may be onto something, society has decided for us collectively, let's be careful around one another. Let, let's be civil to one another. Let's be 
you know, let, let, I mean, we take that to the extreme. I mean, obviously, we want to be civil and fair-minded and and kind to one another. But but we, we've crossed the, the the kind of the line of I want to be considerate, fair-minded, and respectful. But that doesn't mean I can't tell you what I believe. And I think the idea of Trump, I think Josh is onto something here. Trump is a a symbol. He's a representative of you know this. Um, I don't care what people say. You can't say I'm saying it anyway. I don't care what people say you can't comment on. I'm commenting anyway. Um, right. Now, once again, he's 70-some-odd years old with a lot of money. I mean, he's in a liberated place in his life. A lot of us, uh, myself included, have to be careful about how far do you go um, to say the things that you firmly and, and staunchly believe in because we live in a transactional world. Um, you know, I've got sponsors. I've got sponsors in certain fields and certain businesses I meet with those sponsors from time to time because I say things every now and then about, you know, the business they're in, the industry um, they're in, the, the way it's affected by government, my opinions about that. But, but I, I think you're on to something. Society requires us today to walk on eggshells and be afraid to speak our mind, especially if we see the world as you and I, as you and I do. It's not readily embraced to do that. Um, that that's kind of an interesting concept. And once again, you're agreeing with me, and I think a lot of our listeners will agree, um, if we're not voting for the man, we're voting for the idea. We're, we're voting for some sort of conceptual uh, something or other out there that reflects what we believe about the country and who believe who we believe uh, needs to be in charge. And, and I think you, you're probably on to something. A lot of the um, a lot of support of Trump is he says those things that you can't say. Mm-hmm. He steps on the toes that you like to see the toes stepped on. He puts people in conflicting positions that you like to see scrambled and squirm and wonder if they can wiggle off the hook, right? Right. I mean, in, in essence, he speaks truth to power. Yeah. Now, now, they would argue he's a liar. You and I would say, no, he's not a liar. He's a troublemaker. I mean, he's a rabble rouser. There's no doubt about it. I, I, I don't deny being somewhat of a rabble rouser. I mean, I don't at times what we get into these subjects or, or, or topics, and it requires that. So um, hold on to that. Let's take our first break. Don't want to get too far behind. Got a couple of calls. They're lined up. I, I, once again, I think the most interesting part of this topic is not what I think. I mean, you've heard me four hours a day, five days a week. What, what, what is the idea or concept of Trump that you find so interesting and gives you the reason to give him the support you've given him? Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Billy calling from Florence. Billy, you're on the air. Hello, Billy. Hey. hey good morning, guys. Good morning, guys. How y'all doing? Good morning. How are uh, you? Doing good. Love the show. You guys made my drive to Columbia uh, very entertaining. Uh, first of all, you guys give probably the best backhanded compliments uh, to Trump ever. <laughs> it's just, I never hear you guys, and it's probably me, I don't get to listen to all the show, but I never hear anything bad about the mumbling, stumbling uh, gentleman in the house now. Uh, but I have to ask you, if Trump didn't stand up for Trump, who would? I mean, he says the things that we love to say to our boss or to people around us, we don't have the nerve. So I, I love to hear him stand up for himself because then I know he'll stand up for me. Well, explain. Thank, thank you, Billy. Appreciate that. See, that's an interesting. Trump can say things that Billy can't. Right. I mean, Billy's on his way to work. I, I doubt he's flying in his own jet. I, I doubt there's the, the, the name emblazoned. I think there's some empowerment there. I think Trump embodies 
and I can't speak for women because I don't know how women feel about that, but, you know, take this job and shove it. I mean, every man at some point in time in their lives have had that impulse. And, but you can't because you got kids and you got a mortgage, you got a house, you know, you, you got all these responsibilities and obligations. And I'm not saying jobs are bad, but, but days are bad. And on those bad days, we have to grind. Um, and in Trump, if Trump has a bad day, Trump just blames somebody else for it. You know, he just doesn't. And I understand the backhanded compliments. I don't think we give backhanded compliments. I think we call it like we see it. I think Trump is an ass. I like the guy. I like him because I think he'll, he's not beholden anybody. I mean, he can say these things that, that most of us only wish we could say. And he acts upon things that only most of us wish we can, can act upon. Um, and, and, you know, but, but I don't think that's a backhanded, I understand what Billy's saying. I mean, I certainly understand that, but I think to accept Trump as a, a deeply flawed man, but a political revolutionary See, my, my question is this, and I've always wondered this, pondered, um, considered. Does Trump know he's a political revolutionary? Rev and I have this debate a lot about some of the um, some of the things he says and does. Are they sarcastic or, or does he mean that? See, I think there's beauty in forcing us to speculate. When he puts in parentheses in one of these true social posts, the best ever, you know, the greatest ever. I mean, is it Muhammad Ali playing a game with us? Or, or is it some sort of a um, kind of a juvenile reaction that he has? I don't know the answer to that. And that's probably the beauty within within Trump. But, but I, what, the point I'm trying to make is Donald Trump has had every reason to be run off the political scene. I mean, he's made so many mistakes. I mean, he, I've run for office. I, I've been trained and taught in the condition to believe there are things you can do and things you can't do. And there are a few things you can't do. And if you do, you're done. I mean, you're done. You go home. You don't get a chance to play in that game again. He's just blown through those normal rules and procedures. I mean, remember the debate with Megyn Kelly? What was he bleeding out of her eyes or whatever? I mean, I can remember when he said that, thinking to myself, okay, this has been a fun ride. <laughs> I mean, this has been a fun ride, but you can't say that. And he goes up three points in the poll. And, you right. know, and then he says these other outlandish things. And maybe, I mean, you're on to something and Billy's on to something. He says these things that we can't say. And, and we're all a bit, uh, our ability to be provoked and kind of, um, you know, we, we dream about the, I want to take, I mean, I used to take my job, take this job and shove it. I mean, you know, that's the old Johnny Paycheck, I think, song. Um, and I think every man at some point in their lives wanted to tell their balls to take this job and shove it. Or if you own the business, take this job and shove it. Um, but, but once again, you're bound, you're committed. You, you're, you, you, you got no choice. I mean, you can go find another job, but you, you know, you put yourself out there a bit if you decide to do that. And Trump says these things that we wish we could say. And I, I, I don't, I'd go along with a lot of that. I mean, he says these things, no matter how outrageous they may be. Maybe there's something inside of all of us that has a burning desire to say outrageous things. I mean, you've said about me, I'm a little abrasive. I mean, I, I don't think I, I mean, I guess I am arrogant to some degree. I think I balance arrogance and humility. I mean, I understand uh, coming from a small town that humility is important, considering other people are important. I've been taught that since I was a small kid, but, but I've also gotten to a place where I'm not going to allow people to tell me what I can and cannot say. 
I mean, if ownership right. owned this, if ownership said, Ken, um, you can't say these things. You can't say, hey, you got to talk about these things this way. I mean, I'd walk out of here. I mean, I really and truly would. Now, I'd, I'd scramble for a while trying to figure out something else else to do. Um, Trump's an extreme case of that, an extreme example of, you know, what's in his head normally comes out of his mouth and he can get away with it. Let's go to the phone. We have Larry calling from the PD. Larry, you're on the air. Good morning. I think you guys are on it about 99%. I, I want to add this, this one part about it. This is the part that the other side doesn't understand. They think we're all walking around dying to be ugly to people. And we're not. And it's not that Trump says things that I walk around all day wishing I could say. It's that we finally realized that there's something, some people can go through this society and say whatever they feel, and some people can't. And that's the part that's got us upset. I don't want to make anybody upset. I don't want to be disagreeable. I'm not sitting at work wishing I could tell somebody what for. I just wish I could share my opinion as freely as other people do, with no impunity like they do. And Trump is the first person that has been able to do it. Now, I won't say with no impunity. I mean, they're, they're, they're all over him, right? And that's the other part. We, the, the right, the conservative-leaning people, the people that want an ordered society, we felt like, you know, somehow or another, the inmates got in charge of the asylum, and we can't even say things like, hey, you know, eating too much is not good for you. Like, we're not even allowed to say that, you know? And it's like, we'll lose our job, we'll lose our place in society, and everybody's like, oh, no, that's not how we operate. And then someone gets on the national scene and does it, and it's exactly how they operate. And we watch them pile on them, and we go, dude, we were right. It is this bad. And we say, you know what, we can't all go around saying it, but if we'll give our political power to this guy, at least one person gets to say it. And I think that's what it boils down to is that they misunderstand that and think we're angry. We're this angry mob of people. We're not. We just want to participate in society like everybody else does and not get fired for it or not get canceled for it or not get our sponsors taken away or deplatformed for it. And they're just, you know, and, and they say, well, we don't do those things. But then when Trump does it, we see that they do. So I think that's why we like Trump is he gets the proxy. For all of us. Larry, I, I know you a little bit. Are, are you comfortable all the time defending Trump? Hell no. <laughs> Do you find yourself, I mean, here's where I am. I find myself defending him at times when, I, when I'm, I'm wondering whether I should be defending him at times because of some of the things you just said. He has liberated some of our feelings and, and emotions. And, and, and there are times that, that they'll go after him and I'll defend him and I'll say, you, you got to be careful defending. I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, I, I find myself often conflicted in my defending of Trump on things that I probably wouldn't normally defend anybody, I'm saying, because of the one-sidedness of the way he's been treated. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, and it's because of people, a group of people that claim to have absolutely no, no morality suddenly find it when they oppose him. And so we're like, you can't just bring out your morality now. You know, yeah, I've got to defend him because – You've got people doing that and ten times worse, and you won't you won't raise an eyebrow. So yeah, I end up defending something that I really don't wish he did. But I'm like, it's not that I'm defending what he did. I'm I'm almost countering the argument. Why do you care? This is not something you've ever been concerned about. But suddenly, when he does it, it it's you know it's the most horrible thing that's ever happened. Bingo. But you guys don't. Yeah, that's it. 
Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. 843-661-0937. If, if, if we're torn on the person Trump, and I'm not saying Trump's uh, you know, a jerk. I mean, I, I think he, well, I, I, I'll say that. I mean, I think very often he comes across as a jerk. Um, he's a bully. What if he's a bully? I mean, he, he doesn't back down. He's abrasive. He's matter of fact. He's, um, I mean, I'll tell you, he reminds me of the people that I admired and respected growing up. My dad was a rough and tumble self-made business guy. My dad's world, his universe of friends were, you know, a lot rough and tumble self-made business guys. They were very unfiltered. They were very blunt. They were very abrasive. They were very matter of fact. They were very politically incorrect. They were not real woke, mind you. But but I saw that as a kid. I looked up to my dad. My dad's self-made rough and tumble business guy. All of his friends, rough and tumble self-made business guys. What do I want to be, Josh? I want to be like them. Right. I want to be a rough and tumble self-made business guy. And and those people just send. So so when Trump says these things that, that everybody else is like, wow. I mean, can you? It, it sounded normal to me. I mean, it did. It sounded like, hey, that he sounds like one of my dad's friends, you know, playing poker on a Wednesday night at 11 o'clock with a cigar in their mouth. And, and I'm drooling at the mouth wanting to be that so so bad. I mean, you know, is this, um, I mean, I think it's toxic masculinity. I mean, Trump Trump's white. He's rich. He's blunt. I mean, he's everything the left hates. I mean, the, the, the left, in all honesty, let's be honest, the hate hates, excuse me, the left hates a, 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 a wealthy, white, masculine male. I mean, that, he kind of puts a lot of checks in the boxes before the left and their politically correct and woke agenda. I mean, he's the epitome of who we're supposed to hate. And, and, but, but, but every now and then, coming from where I come from and have the upbringing I had, he'll say something, and it's almost indefensible, but I find myself compelled to defend him. And that's when I get myself conflicted. I said, I can't defend him for saying that, but I have to. But because once again, um, the, the, these, the, those who have the intellectual and moral high ground are no more intellectual or moral than, than Trump is. But, but once again, uh, the media has, you know, kind of um, uh, anointed them as supreme beings of the universe. And they have the right and authority to disparage Trump. And when they disparage Trump, they, dis- they disparage. That's where I get conflicted. When he says things that, that I don't condone, and I, and I catch myself condoning them anyway, because I just feel like because of what he goes through, because of the way the media and the administrative agencies and our government have treated him, I mean, I'm kind of all he's got. I know that's weird. He's got a jet and he's got apartments and, and, and houses all over the world. He's got golf courses. And at times I have this impulse of I've all he's got and I got to go, go defend him. No, he's probably got an American Express black card. You know what he's got? You know, he's got all, but he's got a crazy lifestyle that he leads. But at times I find myself believing that I'm that last link in the chain. I've got to hold on. I've got to endure. I've got to defend him when he doesn't deserve to be defended. That's kind of an abnormal reaction. I mean, but, but that's where I catch myself. You're nodding your head. Larry kind of admitted, yeah, I do catch myself at times defending him when under normal circumstances it's indefensible. You can't defend a guy who says that. Right. I think, you know, you, you've been kind of hinting at it. I think American culture now has become radically feminized. And there is a distinction between man and woman. They have different traits. And, you know, I, I play video games from time to time, and I interact with people online, and a lot of them are, like, really young kids, specifically boys. And they are they're the biggest bullies on there. And, and, I'm, and I think it's funny. I, I crack up 
at it and and I ask him I'm like so you're like nine or ten what's it like in school now and they're talking about how much it sucks and like how the teachers get on them for being disruptive and being rowdy which you know we were all like that in school but that is like the natural state of a young boy and it's being kind of suppressed I mean I you know like I I remember growing up my dad would you know he'd yell at me and my mom would kind of come to the rescue sure and in the moment, that's what I wanted. But now I look back on it, and I'm like, I kind of wish my dad be uh, not physically beat up on me, but you know, kind of push me around a little bit more, kind of get me in this confrontational mindset, allow you to be a uh, a male, exactly, but allow that masculinity to be a part of your you know your makeup, who you are. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We got a call. Don't hang up. Somebody hung up during the last break, but we got to pay some bills. This is um terrestrial radio, and we must. Show a profit. 843-661-0937. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Josh, some of the most understandable um, summaries I've heard about the third indictment of Donald Trump is from non-lawyers. I mean, they, they, you know, they're arguing it, it, it kind of borders, teeters on a, a First Amendment case. I've heard McCarthy and Turley talk about, um, you know, are we criminalizing politics in America today? Uh, believe it or not, politicians stretch the truth every now and then. They embellish. No they kidding. Aren't, they aren't completely and totally forthright and and honest. Um, I'm concerned of that. I'm concerned we're criminalizing politics. And, you know, I'll get real technical. Politics is squishy, if you will. And, um, and I just think every politician needs to be paying attention to this case uh, for what is legal or not. Uh, you know, and we can argue precedents about fraud and the Simonelli case. At the Supreme Court. But so anyway, there there are legal arguments being made. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Once again, some of the summaries I've heard by non-lawyers are understandable. But there is still the nuance of law, um, the process of legality. And Fox News Radio's Eben Brown is in Miami um, to tell us about the latest issue legally that we're dealing with. And that is former President Trump's legal team had, I think, until late yesterday afternoon to respond to a protective order um, that the prosecution is um, considering or, or asking the judge for. Eben, what happened yesterday? How did the how did the um, I guess the hearing or the um, the situation uh, reveal itself? Well, I, the, the response I believe was made. I don't think we have a um, a decision from the judge yet. The uh, what the former president and his legal team want uh, first of all is to have no protective order. Uh, the prosecution wants uh, the judge to tell the, uh, the the former president he can't share any evidence uh, with the public at large. Uh, and the former president and his legal team saying, wait a second, we have an absolute right to do this. You know, you're you're trying us on, on something that could be a First Amendment issue, and you're trying to limit our First Amendment here, uh, that we have the ability to tell the public about our trial uh, and that includes sharing the evidence, uh, with the exception of something that truly may be sensitive to national security. The prosecution is saying all of it's sensitive to national security. But we have, um, you know, we, we, we kind of have this thing in this country and our history against the government saying, well, we have this envelope full of evidence, which we're not going to show you. But trust me, it says you're guilty. And we're going to just kind of hand this to the judge over here. The judge is going to agree you're guilty. But it's, you know, we can't really show you the evidence because it's too, too important, too secret. We don't allow this in this country. In fact, that was one of the things that we 
actually kind of delineated in in when we formed this country that we weren't going to do that. We were going to have no star chamber or, or whatever the you know the historical example would be. Um, so uh, th- th- there is some real, I think, legs to stand on for the former president's legal team and saying, wait a second, we have the right to share this with people, even people who aren't on the bona fide legal team. There are volunteering attorneys who are willing to review the work to help us out, uh, and, and we have the right to enlist their help on a volunteer basis, even if they're not necessarily going to be listed as attorneys of record. Uh, and so there's and, and there's there's really nothing, I think, in law that would truly prevent that. Um, and so uh, that's you know, that's kind of where we're at here. We're, we're sort of in a in a spot that we've never we've never as a country have dealt with before. Uh, and we're asking our legal system to kind of figure it out as we go along. We're talking about prosecuting a former president who's running for the presidency again, who has a serious chance at being president again. Uh, and and what does that really entail? Uh, the prosecution doesn't like the fact that President Trump on his uh, Truth Social said, uh, addressed the judge directly, saying, if you come after me, I'm going to come after you, saying that this is some kind of a threat. And I think there's a, a really good legal response to that, saying, well, it's not really a threat. If he becomes president again and he gets a, a legislative majority in his favor, and if they have found problems with how this judge has done her job on the federal bench, they have every legal right to impeach that judge. You know, that that's not out of the out of the norm. So uh, really, what can and can't he say publicly? That that's that's a very big question here. Eben, one of the concerns and I want to this is this is, I guess is central to this debate. One of the concerns I've had is the reliance on a Washington grand jury. Did the judge yeah. address that in any way, shape or form? Well, I don't think so yet. Uh, the the um, but the, it, it is a problem for the for the defense uh, that they feel that they can't get a fair trial in the District of Columbia, which is where this trial is taking place. That the the people who make up the jury pool are in fact the quote unquote swamp that the former president has been arguing for years now is the part and parcel of the problems that we have in this country. Uh, and uh, who uh, the president has been essentially fighting against, uh, because who works, who who lives and works in D.C. It's it's people who either work directly for the federal bureaucracy or through contractors, whatnot. Uh, and and so uh, that that's that that's the argument that the president makes. He can't get a fair trial now. Asking for a, a venue change outside of a district where the case is brought that that's kind of normally doesn't happen. But we, again, we're not in a normal situation here. I, I suspect the judge would deny that request. I expect then, therefore, the, pres- the former president's legal team to uh, to appeal that. But they appeal that across the street to the D.C. Circuit Court. Uh, and if they don't like that answer, they can appeal it up the street to the Supreme Court. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, 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 he may kind of be stuck in, in that district for this uh, for this trial. So we'll you know, we'll see. The, the other thing that concerns a lot of people is this um, the idea that the, the prosecution raises saying we need to have a speedy trial, a speedy trial, a speedy trial, which sounds like a very American thing, the right to the speedy trial, except that that right is the right of the defendant, not the prosecution. It's because it's the defendant who waives that right and often does saying, no, I don't want to get this done in 70 days. I want my legal team to have all the time they need to, to counter this prosecution. Uh, the poor, the purpose of the speedy trial isn't so that the, tr- the, the 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 prosecution can kind of hurry this up. 
uh, for their own benefit. It, it's it, it, the purpose of the speedy trial rule is so that the government can't make you languish for years saying, yeah, we're going to prosecute you eventually. In the meantime, you're stuck in here with no bail and you sit there for years and years and years and years and years and nothing ever gets done about your case. Uh, so it's just really weird that uh, the, the prosecutor, Jack Smith, would be so concerned with the speedy trial rule because it's got nothing really to do with him. Very well explained. Eben, thank you for your time, sir. You got it. Fox News Radio's Eben Brown um, kind of recounting what happened yesterday in some of these um, protective order hearings. Uh, Trump's not going to get a change of venue. I mean, I'll assure you of that. There's no way. There's no way they let this trial get out of D.C. I did see some information yesterday. It's kind of interesting. One of the high-ranking Democrat officials said that Trump, remember when Trump put on uh, Truth Social that he wanted to change a venue to West Virginia? I mean, you don't know if he's serious or not, but he said West Virginia. Um, somebody put, one of the high-ranking Democrats put, you know, um, Washington, D.C., 55% black, 45% white. West Virginia, um, 80% white, 20% black. Um, this is exactly where the trial needs to be. See, diversity means to the left race. I mean, diversity to me means a lot of different things. Uh, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of, um, of education, diversity of, of mindset, diversity of qualifications, diverse, you know, some college graduates, some not, um, some white, some black, some Hispanic, some Asians. The left looks at diversity. It's simply about race. I mean, how many white people and how many black people and how many Asians and how many Hispanics? Diversity doesn't mean that. I looked up the Webster definition of diversity. It's basically variety. But, but the left is uh, kind of pigeon them hold, or, or they try to pigeonhole every debate in, I mean, this is about race. I mean, this, you know, Donald Trump doesn't want black people deciding his fate and future. Um, I just want fair-minded people. I don't care if they're black, white, red, green, yellow. Doesn't matter to me. I don't care if it's in West Virginia, Los Angeles. All I know is Donald Trump got beat in Washington, D.C., 95% to 5%. And if you believe he gets a fair shake, if you believe the odds are he gets a fair shake in D.C., you're a moron. But he's not going to get a fair shake. It's going to be hard to find somebody not sympathetic, but reasonable enough to hear his side of the story. In fact, I would argue of a jury pool of what, a couple of hundred people? Uh, well, let's say 95 to 5. That means 190 voted against Trump, 10 voted for Trump. What are the odds of getting someone not sympathetic to Trump, but respectful of the argument he's making? Slim to none and slim just left town. It's kind of what the numbers are. But once again, the left looks at diversity as um, white and black. And that's not what the word means. You hear me, liberals? The word doesn't mean the difference in white people and black people. Diversity means how many college educated, how many non-college educated, how many conservative, how many liberal, how many working class, how many professionals. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it infuriates me to watch the media kind of, um, you know, uh, allow the left to define diversity as the difference between white and black people. Let's go to the phone. We got Verd Odom, chairman of the Marlboro County Republican Party on the line. Verd, you're on the air. Good morning, Ken. A couple things. Uh, back in January, we had the private meeting with President Trump at the State House, and Senator Graham, he, uh, he spoke for a minute and 53 seconds, and uh, this goes to some of your previous callers about Trump policies. But uh, what Senator Graham said uh, is, uh, you know, I like, Trump policies, but uh, I want somebody else. Well, he said I was there 
I was there through all of it. There are no Trump policies without Donald Trump. And that was basically what he said. He said there are good politicians for years to come, but there's only one Donald Trump, and he's got it right. Donald Trump is the only person in this uh, – in 2016, he was the only person in the world that could save America. And I feel the same way now with the situation. That we're in a much worse situation now than we were in 2016. Donald Trump is the only person that will be able to save America, and I think a lot of people are going to realize that as time goes on. Over to Jack Smith. The more and more this case goes along, the more his case falls apart. He was reprimanded, I think, on four of his uh, uh, indictments uh, the other day, by a couple of days ago, by Carroll. And, you know, he, he changed the, uh, the grand jury in Florida and indicted. He used the grand jury outside the state. And, I mean, I've always been heard, heard that, you know, you're supposed to be uh, – uh, use a grand jury of your peers, or and be tried by a jury of your peers. So I think the long we go, a lot of some of these cases are going to be thrown out. Dismiss God, and he's going to wind up with nothing. The bottom line is in Florida, uh, where the, the gist of the biggest case is going to be tried. Uh, out of twelve jurors, there's going to be at least six that probably voted for President Trump twice, and we only need one to say not guilty. So I just think this whole thing, I think everybody, the reason Trump's numbers are so high is the American people see it, see it for what it is. It, they are trying to eliminate Trump from being able to run because that's the only chance that Joe Biden has. And I still say Joe Biden will never be the nominee of the Democrat Party. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate it. I want to say this, and I want you to listen carefully. The flimsiest case is in D.C. The Trump the case Trump can get in the most trouble on is D.C. I mean, it's venue. It's the flimsiest case of all. I believe that Donald Trump mishandled classified information, just like Joe Biden did, just like Barack Obama did, just like George W. Bush did, just like Bill Clinton did. Now, now you know, what about ism? I, I don't know. We didn't indict nor, nor charge all the other presidents who admitted to mishandling classified information. Did Donald Trump obstruct justice? I mean, there'll be a hearing. We'll have a trial to find out whether or not he obstructed justice. Um, Donald Trump did not defraud the United States. He did not conspire against the United States. Those are flimsy charges. Those are, pun intended, trumped-up charges. But the venue, the fact that the case is going to be in Washington, D.C., uh, the point Verd tried to make is Jack Smith is using some of the um, – uh, as part of the Florida case, the Washington, D.C. grand jury, because he knows it's, it's far more likely to find an anti-Trump grand jury in D.C. than it is in uh, in Florida. I still believe that Florida is the most serious charge, and by that I mean the one you could honestly say Trump obstructed justice. I mean, you could honestly, there, there's a fair debate to be had about that. I would hope that we don't get to a place in America where we indict every politician to ever obstruct the justice. I mean, you know, we can talk about two-tier justice systems. We can talk about the the double standard. The reality is the charges in, I mean, the the, char- the New York state charges are just, I mean, that that's, let's just throw a handful of you-know-what against the wall and hope a little bit of it, of it sticks. I mean, you're talking about Stormy Daniels and all these other sorts of things. The charge in Florida, I mean, there's some substance there, but there's unprecedented there because, we didn't indict Barack Obama. We didn't indict Joe Biden. We didn't indict um, George W. Bush. We didn't indict nearly every president before Donald Trump that mishandled classified information. And that's the double standard. That's the two-tiered justice system. 
but but I so, so once again, I think the best case in Florida, or the best case is in Florida, but the likelihood of an you know a guilty, twelve jurors unanimously agreeing that Donald Trump broke the law, I, I think is slim to none. I really believe that. The flimsiest charge is in D.C., but you've got the venue. You've got a, a very anti-Trump element there. You've got an anti-Trump judge there. You've got someone who has gone to extreme measures to punish some of the offenders of January 6th, not just through the book, through the book, and then some at some of the uh, defenders that were there on January 6th. But, but I, you know, Verge said something, and I, and I, I want to I take it to go a next step because here's where I think we are, and this is why I wanted to begin the show this morning. Um, are you voting for an idea? I mean, if, we're, if, if we agree we're voting for the man, but, but there's an idea behind Trump. I mean, it's the, uh, the concept. I mean, there's, there's something about Trump that he represents that is much bigger than him. I mean, it, we know what it is at a soundbite. It's I don't trust the government. It's not that I find this man to be deeply humble and, you know, it's the guy I want to be the scout leader or, you know, or my, my, you know he's not the grandfather next door. I mean, he's a rough-and-tumble business guy, but, but he represents an idea. And the idea is I don't trust the government. I just do not trust the government. I don't trust the DOJ. I don't trust the FBI. I don't trust the IRS. And, and my protest can be, I mean, the best I can do is vote for Trump and hope he goes there and upsets the apple cart and turns things upside down. But here's where we're headed, guys. And this is kind of the next step of, of, of what a lot of people are having a hard problem adapting to, uh, believing in, committing to. I read an article last weekend, uh, excuse me, end of last week, and again yesterday uh, by Robert Reich. Remember, he was Labor Secretary under Clinton, if I'm not mistaken. And, I mean, he lays out a scenario, and it's interesting because Verge said they want to stop Trump from being president. They do, but they don't want to stop there. They want to put this man in prison. I mean, they, you know, Robert Cahaley told me that three months ago. And I, like, Robert, no, they want to get him, they want to ding him up real bad. They know this empowers him in a primary, and this eventually gets him to, to be the nominee, and then they beat him in the general by winning, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Robert said, no, I'm not, they want to kill this idea. They want to kill this concept. I mean, he's the embodiment of that. For Forget the narcissism. Forget the, you know, he's a horse's ass. I mean, let, let's, for, for argument's sake, let's say he's both. He's narcissistic and he's that. But he's the embodiment of an idea. It's an anti-establishment. It's an anti-insider. It's an anti-credentialed class, an anti-ruling class. He is a manifestation of, of, of voting sentiment that is led and culminated with this, you know, crazy political figure of which we've never seen anybody like. But the other side does not want to just win the election. The other side wants to incarcerate the embodiment of this movement, the, the idea, the concept. It's not that they're putting Trump in prison. They're putting the concept, the idea, the notion of America first. It's an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, anti-imperialist movement. I mean, people have gotten unbelievably wealthy on globalism, unbelievably wealthy on interventionism, unbelievably in, uh, wealthy on advancement of, a, of an empire, and they can't let this happen. Their, their very livelihoods are at risk, and it's not at risk of Donald Trump. It's at risk of a concept, an idea of America first that could you know, fundamentally realign this generational realignment I like to talk about 80% of Republican primary voters 
are kind of on board, maybe not with Trump, but with the concept of, of America first to varying degrees. But I want to go back. We've got to take a break. On the other side, I want to come back and, uh, and read some of what Robert Reich had to say. I mean, it's, it's chilling, but I think it's very, very accurate. Take a break. Back in a few. So let's go off to the twilight zone together. Are you ready? You All ready, right. Josh? I mean, you're ready for this. So let's go off in the twilight. So at, at Trump's arraignment last Thursday, when, I mean, he's being arraigned. I mean, the argument is he's trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. I mean, that's the argument. Donald Trump um, tried to stop the peaceful transition or transfer of power by convincing a bunch of a band of renegades, outlaws, and and, you know, uh, just just uh, troublemaker, rabble-rousers um, to stop the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, that's what our democracy, our republic has historically been able to survive anything that came its way. I mean, we've had disgruntled voting bases. We've had, um, you know, uh, politicians who didn't like the outcome of the election, but we've always maintained uh, the integrity of the process um, the decency of the experiment has has always prevailed, and we've been able to peacefully transfer from one president um, to another. That's the argument. Now, now, I don't buy it. A lot of our listeners don't buy it, but that's the argument Jack Smith is trying to make, that Donald Trump is responsible for convincing a group of people that it was okay to overturn the result of the 2020 election. Trump stood before a magistrate judge in Washington, D.C. Thursday. Upadiah is her name. Um, and she warned him that he could be taken into custody if he violated the conditions of his release, including attempted to influence jurors or intimidate future witnesses. Um, she called him Mr. Trump. She didn't call him President Trump. And, and I think that was her way of saying, you know, you're no different than any other criminal defendant. He is. He's a former president. Yeah. Former presidents have never in our nation's history been indicted of a crime. They've committed crimes. We know that. I mean, we know presidents have committed crimes in days gone by. We've chosen. Uh, I don't know. Uh, judicial regard has allowed us to not get here. Uh, you know, to say it's unprecedented that a president has ever broken the law was just a misnomer. That's not true. I mean, presidents have broken the law. We've chosen uh, in, in the name of, you know, let's don't set that precedent. I mean, let's be careful about these American presidents, but Trump's been indicted three times. He will be indicted four times and impeached twice. I mean, the nation has hardly ever impeached presidents. Uh, we've done it twice to Trump, and now we've got four indictments. But, I mean, he's like everybody else. There's nothing to see here. There's not a double standard. There's not two sets of, of, uh, of rules and laws, and, you know, we, we treat everybody the same here in the good old U.S. of A. Um, but anyway, and then she said this, I want to remind you that it is a crime to try and influence a juror or threaten or attempt to bribe a witness or any other person who may have information about your case or retaliate against anyone for providing information about your case to the prosecution or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. The judge then warned Trump. I'm reading verbatim from the transcript. You have heard your conditions of release. I mean, imagine that, guys. I mean, this is where it gets real. You have heard your conditions of release. It's important you comply. You may be held pending trial in this case if you violate the conditions of release. Here's where we are, and this is where a lot of us felt we'd never get. 
They are not trying to stop America first at the ballot box. Forget Zuckerberg and the $420 million he spent, uh, you know, 26 grants in excess of a million dollars, I think, uh, in Atlanta and, well, I mean, in, in Georgia, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Nevada, and Arizona. I mean, there, there were about $100 million of the 400, well, about $200 million of the $420 million were spent in those swing states. If you did a calculus, you could say that in, in, in the national average of a um, a cost per vote is somewhere between 4 and $7. In these precincts and counties, Fulton, Gwinnett County in Georgia, Brown County in Wisconsin, the city of Detroit, the city of Philadelphia, the city of Pittsburgh, Maricopa County, Las Vegas in Nevada, it was about $47 per vote. I mean, when you run a spreadsheet and say, okay, the national average, Zuckerberg spent about as much money in 26 counties as the federal and state government spent conducting the election. Now, now you may believe that he did that in the name of voting integrity. You may believe that he did, uh, you know, kind of um, to make sure those who were intentionally disenfranchised were allowed to vote. Hogwash. I don't buy that for a second. He, He spent money on ballot harvesting, unsolicited mail-in ballots, uh, probably paying off a lot of local governments and election commissions to waive some of the authority and rights they had. Um, you know, we know that laws were broken in certain states. And and, and I don't want to revisit the 2020 election because I've always said that's a, bad, that's a bad way to win in 2024, but you're going to have to now. Because once again, Trump is on trial for trying to overturn the result of the 2020 election. Somebody said yesterday, this may be an opportunity to bring forth facts that have normally not been in the mainstream, the statistical anomalies. Uh, remember yesterday, um, uh, Josh, and you were one of the few people who know this, that, um, that we've got something called, you ready? It's called the, the, the BART algorithm. It's the, um, the Bayesian additive regression tree. I mean, I could confuse you and I, but I won't do that. I'll just say it is a, um, it's an algorithm and it makes casual references or inferences. I'm sorry. It's kind of the gold standard. And you thought, start thinking about causation, correlation, estimation. Um, I'll give you the best example. If a hurricane, we used this last week. If a hurricane is 30 miles off the coast of Charleston, it's not going to hit Ireland. I mean, right. the, the, the causation, correlation, estimation, I mean, it's just not going to happen well, the algorithm that accepted the data from um, these counties, and I'll give you the counties from, uh, from well, I mean, I say I'll give them to you. Uh, you want to jump in, Josh? You wanted to say something, I can tell, a second ago. Uh, I was just going to say to the really, really, really dumbed-down version of it is it is a, a mathematical attempt to take a non-mathematical issue and break it down to mathematics Correct. to estimate the likelihood of something happening or not happening. And and it's not statistically impossible. Right. I guess there is a, there's a statistical possibility that a hurricane 30 miles off the coast of Charleston could hit Ireland. I mean, that's not statistically impossible. You and I know in a worldly way it's impossible, but it could happen. Yeah, I mean, it's highly unlikely, but it could happen. And you're right. It is to take non-statistical information and crunch it down in some sort of mathematical way. Is that fair to say? 
Yes. A- and it's kind of the gold standard. And once again, the words are estimation, correlation, um, you know, the um, the inferences included in that. I mean, that. You know, in the algorithm, it was the two-party Hillary Clinton 2016 vote share, uh, the county share of the total state population, its geographic location, turnout percent in 16. Um, I mean, there, there's no way to say exactly how many people voted. I mean, there, there's no way. The 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 process of which they used says, yeah, I mean, that many people can vote in Philadelphia. That many people can vote in Maricopa County. That many people can vote in in, uh, in Atlanta. That many people can vote in Las Vegas and Maricopa County. And a hurricane can turn on a dime and go hit Ireland. You know, 30 miles. I mean, it could happen. Right. But but it's highly unlikely. The correlation, um, causation, and estimation says uh, it's just nonsense to believe that that could indeed um, happen. So, so I've changed, and I'm no longer going to say that I think they stole the election fair and square. I mean, that's what I've said for about six years. After further review, Mark Zuckerberg bought the election. Yeah, I, I think mean, the that's The $420 million he spent... Now, did it did it did it increase Joe Biden's vote total by seven million? I don't know, but we're not talking about the popular vote. We're talking about what four hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand votes in four states, and we know how important Atlanta, Detroit, um, Brown County—that's Green Bay, the Green Bay area, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Maricopa County, and Las Vegas. I mean, that, that, that's where the the majority of funds um, were spent there. But but I, I want to go back to this because we're going to be forced to talk about it, guys. But I've said from day one, the best thing to do if Trump wants to be president again is let bygones be bygones. Let the 2020 election stand. Um, You could say casually that there's some things I've never been able to understand. There's some things the public would like to have explained, but I'm talking about 2024. Can't do that now. He's going to be on trial for for trying to, their words, not mine, trying to overturn the result of the 2020 election. They're going to have to have an argument. Now, now, somebody said yesterday, well, this could be the allowance of certain information that has been excluded from public debate. It could. I mean, there's no doubt. I got to believe that William Doyle will be a star witness of the Trump team. I mean, they, they, you know, to talk about was the election valid or not? Was it legitimate or not? Stolen's the bad word. I think stolen turns off some of the independents. And, and you're going to have to deal with this trial. The trial is going to be a fundamental part of the campaign. I mean, more people will, will, will pay attention to the trial than to debates. Mm-hmm. So, so you're going to have to have some sort of argument, a believable argument to make to the American public about why you believe. I don't want to say January 6th was, 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 was what should have happened, but the reason they were there on January 6th was because they didn't trust the outcome of the 2020 election, and here's why. It can't be because Trump said you couldn't trust it. Trump said, no, it's got to be, it's got to be back with statistics and fact and data and, and some of this algorithmic information uh, we're talking about. But, but here's where it gets a little bit chilling. It's not about the presidential um, power. This is about a movement that is a threat to um, the, the, the credentialed class, those who run the world, of the World Economic Forum, uh, the, 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 the cathedral, whomever you want to identify um, the Klaus Schwab's of the world, the the Jamie Diamonds of the world, the uh, you know the, those people that have empowered themselves in such a way that they control the global economy, and, and along with that comes you know gl- global political dominance. So 
they're trying to put Trump in prison. I mean, they're really and truly trying to make sure, um, you know, that he's the poster child of why you don't do this. Right. And so, so, so when she says, you have heard the conditions of release, it is important you comply. You may be held pending trial in this case if you violate the conditions of your release. She asked Trump, do you understand these warnings and consequences, sir? Are you prepared to comply? Trump responded, yes. But about 24 hours later, Trump was posting on social media, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Um, on Friday, we just talked to Evan Brown about it. On Friday, prosecutors from the office of Special Counsel Jack Smith asked the court for a protective order to stop Trump from making public uh, any of the information that, that I guess they're delivering to the lawyers under the uh, discovery phase of this upcoming criminal trial. Um, the witnesses, I guess, that will testify against him. I mean, there, there are a lot of, you know, people that formerly worked for Trump that will testify he knew and he didn't know. Yeah, he did. And, and no, he didn't. They'll be examined, cross-examined. I mean, there, there'll be an attempt at the prosecution and the defense to get them to agree to certain things or not. But, but I think the most important thing is, is to accept, and, and this is hard, to accept that their intent is to put Trump in jail. Right. I mean, that their intent is for us to be so demoralized to see, you know, Donald Trump, once again, we've argued for an hour. No, we've not argued. We've debated for an hour. Is this about Trump or is this about an idea? Most of our listeners agree that Trump is a small part considering the idea that the concept of an American government that honors its obligation to the republic, not the empire. I mean, the empire takes six, what, six and a half trillion dollars to keep the trains running on time. We don't know what a republic cost. I mean, the majority of opposition within the Republican Party of Donald Trump is the corrupt consulting class. I mean, it's the military-industrial complex. I mean, I know the, the, the likely suspects. It's these um, think tanks that have been funded by the insiders. It's the, um, the consultants that are funded by uh, the insiders. It's K Street. You know, it's the law firms on K Street that have made unbelievable fortunes advancing the empire, advancing interventionism, advancing globalism at the expense of the American worker. So it's not Trump. I mean, when if and when Trump were to be incarcerated, the idea, the concept of America first takes a huge hit. And, and that's what this is about. And, and I'd love to, when Robert Cahaley told me that six or seven weeks ago, Robert gets a bit, you know, uh, not unhinged. I mean, that's unfair to Robert. Robert is very, very competent and smart and delicate about the way he does certain things. But when Robert told me on the phone six or eight weeks ago, Ken, you don't understand. You don't want to accept this reality. It's not to defeat America first. It's not to make globalism, interventionism, um, you know, the empire, uh, you know, uh, back as the dominant political ideology in Washington. This is to decimate a movement, and by decimating the movement, if decimating the movement requires putting its leader in, in jail, that's exactly what they'll do. And I think we've got to come to that realization. I think we understand that, the, that they're fundamentally opposed to everything we believe in. They're fundamentally opposed to the advancing of this movement. Um, you know, if J.D. Vance is to be a spokesperson for America First, I mean, they're fundamentally opposed to that. But, but I, I don't think many of us ever believed that they would actually make an honest attempt 
a, a very a very aggressive attempt to try and put Donald Trump in prison. I'm telling you, they will. They are. That is their end game. That is their game plan. It is not to potentially make him the nominee so they can beat him in, in, in November of 2024. I mean, that's part of the game plan. Who do you want to run against? I mean, we all do that. But but I'm telling you, the priority of this you know investigation and this ongoing indictment after indictment after indictment is to try and figure out a way to put him in prison for you know some criminal activity. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Josh, I want to get your take on this. Doctor Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. But I want to get Josh's his take on this. Okay. So so you would agree that conservative talk radio is a force. Yes. There's no doubt about it. Um, Juan Williams gave the best compliment ever when they were talking about the polling over the weekend. And Juan Williams said, the token liberal at Fox News said, hey, those talk radio boys hadn't got to work. Wait till they get to work on Monday and they'll gin up that um, the other side of this debate. But, but you would agree at times talk radio says things uniquely different than any other media outlet would even consider saying something. And I mean, I don't know that you can say they want to put Donald Trump in prison any other forum except conservative talk radio. What say you to that? I mean, no matter if it's true or not, I mean, I believe it with every fiber of my body that they will eventually try and put Trump in jail. But you can't say that even on Fox News. Yeah, I think you're right. And and it's kind of like you hinted at earlier. I think this trial for Trump is a nexus point. Like, you know, this judge, like Trump is essentially saying, you know, if I become president, you're out. So what's she going to do? She She's going to put him in prison. You know, she's going to do whatever it takes. So I, th- I think that what you're hinting at is kind of right, where we're not allowed to kind of talk about this. I mean, I heard, you know, not to bring up uh, a... A less interesting host, Dan Bongino, he said something on the air yesterday. I was like, good Lord, I can't believe he said that. And I'm like, is he going to get in trouble for that? But uh, we'll see. Well, I mean, and, and it goes back to the guardrails. You right. Know, I mean, we have very, very um, loose guardrails in conservative talk radio, but we have a responsibility. And, I, and I've said before, Dr. Bolden, I mean this sincerely, I'm not going to say something over the airwaves simply to provoke I understand that things I say do provoke but but I, I've got to have some ability to defend what it is I say and I do believe that Donald Trump is not I don't think Trump the man bothers the insiders forget liberals I mean I get that liberal conservative historically that's been a big debate I don't think Trump the man bothers insiders as much as the concept or notion of this generational realignment that yeah. could happen in politics. Um, and, and I've used this analogy before, Dr. Bolt, you've got a fork in the road and on <laughs> one fork, it goes to the empire. The other goes to the Republic. Yeah. And we've yeah. always tried to balance the, um, the empire in conjunction with the Republic. And, and I believe I can't, I don't want to put you on the spot here. I think the empire has outpaced the Republic by a fairly good yeah. distance. And, and we're trying to recalibrate. We're trying to get things back in into order. Now, now once again, and, and I told you on the on the break, the Jeffersonian Hamiltonian debate. I mean, it was intellectual. Yeah. I mean, point. we're talking yeah. about ideology. Yeah. You, you, you're a history professor. You're very equipped to argue the points pro and con of of Jeffersonian government or Hamiltonian government. Like if somebody so. assigned you a, a class twenty years from today. <laughs> 
and said, hey, this Trumpian government, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, that's unfair because it hasn't played itself completely sure, out yet. Sure. But but how do you analyze that yeah. from a historical perspective? Again, it, it's fascinating right now to kind of watch it right now and just think about how people are going to take it apart 20, 30 years. We don't know what, when the last chapter, this could just be the very, very beginning of something that could really, really burgeon. Or this could be the final, the the death knell, the death throes of it, if they if they can find a way to convict him and take out the leader. So no, if, if at least my opinion, I would teach it right now. This is a, obviously America first. Uh, renegotiate trade agreements. All right, we've there's been some really garbage trade agreements, which have hurt particular sectors of the country, particularly the the Rust Belt, the industrial Northwest. These were areas that had long been uh, in the back pocket of the Democratic Party, and they, it took it for granted. Came up and bought, bit them in the rear end in 2016. Uh, enforcing immigration laws, not just saying, oh, yeah, they're on the book, but actually getting tough um, and protecting uh, protecting American jobs through uh, enforcing these immigration deals. And again, Trump is the, is, the, is the messenger. He is the face of this. Will it continue if he rides off into the sunset, if he, heaven help us, if he's convicted? And there's a lot of... Liberals, a lot of Democrats who aren't going to be happy until they see this guy in an orange jumpsuit uh, in chains. And again, so maybe the this one, the third, I don't know, my, my grandmother always told me, second bite at a bad apple is just as bad as the first. I don't know about the third bite at a bad apple. And where they're gonna, there's going to be a fourth bite down the road as well. But, but you would agree, I think, that the Jeffersonian government had an intellectual underpinning and, oh, and kind of a yeah. founder in Thomas Jefferson. I mean, it was a well oh, a thought out man's, philosophy. Yeah. Hamiltonian government was yep. the same. I mean, you know, it's um, it was philosophical. It was ideological. It was well thought out. Right. The, the, Tr- this Trump is kind of a phenomenon. It's populist. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to the elites, right? We're sort of bypassing. We're speaking directly to the people. We're encouraging the people, the masses, to rise up and get involved. Right? You want to get involved in politics with the year the playbook was before? Right, you serve in, in, in local government, and you kind of work your way up over 15, 20 years. Then you run for Congress, and then maybe you can have a voice. How many people are now are just saying, well, no, I'm gonna, I don't like this guy. I'm going to primary challenge this guy and try and get a seat in the House. you got a whole bunch of freshman individuals, fresh new ideas, certainly inspired by Trump, and the intelligentsia of the establishment class are pulling their hairs out. And what do we do with these uh, these newcomers, these these young Turks who aren't playing by the same set of rules? Again, when you go to Washington, you're supposed to sort of be seen and not heard for many years, right? You just you you, you pay your dues. Eventually, you can work your way up to a, a committee chairmanship, and then you get a seat at the table. Now, hey, man, anybody can go out there in front of the cameras, get yourself a podcast, uh, and suddenly you're making a name for yourself. And, and now in America, we know all these backbench congressmen. 20, 30 years ago, you never would have heard of Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Lauren Boebert. And now these are sort of almost, dare we say, the face of the Republican Party. What Jefferson, I've always thought, would have been conflicted on Trump. Where, where is his intelligentsia? <laughs> right. But 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 he's a hell of a rabble-rouser. Right, Jefferson, and Jefferson kind of had an affinity for both. Right. Jefferson wanted to portray himself as sort of a, a man of the people. And Jefferson didn't really like to kind of get down in the nitty-gritty of politics. You know, Jefferson didn't like to give the speeches, obviously. Didn't like to go out and, and campaign and press the flesh, kiss the babies. And Jefferson's at a small dinner party with his fellow elites over over glasses of wine. Uh, let's. I'm going to write a pamphlet. That's how I'm going to get it. Jeff Jefferson's kind of successor, Andrew Jackson, was the exact opposite. A very wealthy individual, 
you know, who could who was barely literate, but Jefferson Jackson would give a speech. You know, he could r- raise the uh, the ire of the people, inspire them in many ways that Trump could. And if you know, Andrew Jackson probably would have been very very happy at a at a, at a Trump rally, would have been happy to be the the opening act uh, for President Trump. But 25 years from today, some college kid walks into Will Bolt's um, <laughs> classroom and says, Dr. Bolt, I mean, you, you've explained the pre-Civil War America exquisitely well. I mean, I understand yeah. it. You've done a great job. But there was just a guy that came along in 2016 <laughs> that got indicted four times, <laughs> that was impeached twice. <laughs> the hell's going on here? I mean, how, how, do you, yeah. how do you take that? I mean, once again— no American president prior to Donald Trump had been indicted. indicted yep. uh, only one or two had been impeached. Yep. Trump has two impeachments <laughs> and four indictments in, in four years. As of, as of right now. Yeah, yeah. as of right now. <laughs> the one got three as of right now. The fourth we is know coming, it's coming from, from yeah. Georgia without question. There, who knows if there's another one lurking but, but out there. But historically speaking, <laughs> what, what do you say to that? Again, it was uh, people, Two thousand. We, we got sick and tired. Both of the political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, had, had kind of turned their back. And they were all kind of talking about the same thing. The, the common man, the little man, had been left behind. Nobody was really speaking. The Democrats had kind of taken him for granted, abandoned him for most part. Republicans eh, didn't really pay him too, too much attention. And here comes Trump riding down the escalator saying, hey, everybody's abandoned. Nobody's listening to you. Join me. Come with me. And we can really upset the apple cart. We can make some changes. And he had his finger on the pulse. It was the right message at the right time. It resonated with voters. Democrats, Hillary Clinton kind of took him for granted, didn't think he was serious, uh, made a terrible mistake when she referred to his supporters as deplorables. Uh, that has to go down as one of the biggest blunders in all of American political history. But we've been underestimating President Trump. How many times have we said, ah, this is it? And I think, I mean, an, another indictment, these just seem to help him politically. It, it, it Again, when President Trump says, when they come after me, they're coming after you. Absolutely. And so, yes, it, these, these, it benefits him. So you've done a great job of explaining the connection that, that he's made with a universe of voters who have, yeah. once again, to your the forgotten man, the forgotten woman, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the Midwest, some of the— um, it's, it's a populist rhetoric. And, okay, but let's go here. What, what do you make of the resistance to Trump? <laughs> well, again, here's a guy—for always for over 100 years, this is just how— Things have worked in Washington, D.C. We built these systems. We built right. this machine. Yeah, right. And Democrat, Republican kind of work inside of it. Right? You, you maybe kind of tinker it around the edges. And even something like a Ted Cruz in 2016, there wouldn't have been huge, dramatic changes. But now here comes a guy, an outsider, no political experience, a, a Manhattan real estate mogul who says, I've got another way. Right? This, this is, we're we're going to tear it all down. We're not just going to dress. We're going to burn it. Burn it down to the ground and start from scratch. And everybody who's invested realizes I've got a lot to lose if if this guy comes to power and if this guy does what he says he's gonna do. You know, this is everything that I've sort of worked for is now gonna go up in smoke. And so yes, there's on both sides of the aisle, men and women are just terrified of what Trump represents. And okay, that, that's why they've tried to stop him. Who wins? I mean, I'm asking you to speculate. I mean, they, yeah. I'm asking you. I mean, historians look back, All right? Sure. And they try to better understand and explain why this happened, why that happened, what the consequence of of this or that or the other were. I'm asking you to do something historians don't do, yeah. and that is look into the future. Do, do, do you think Trump ends up in prison or back in the White House? Based on kind of what I saw, what I heard, it seemed a lot of my Democrat liberal colleagues had an extra bounce in their step the past week. That this one just seemed to be 
seem to be different. And so maybe they think that it's in Washington, not exactly the friendliest ground. It looks like it's a tough judge who's not going to suffer any fools. They seem to think that maybe this is this this is the end of the road for him. Heaven help them if he can get an acquittal or at least a, a hung jury. I think if th- they've got him on the ropes, they've got to deliver the knockout blow. If he survives somehow, beats back all of these indictments, think of how strong he would be uh, politically. At the end of the day, I also think, though, that maybe tr- poor Trump is just getting bled with all of these these legal fees. If Smith says to him, hey, just, just plead to this, no jail time, a couple of fines, you don't run for office, you do your Trump, you just say, I'm just going to take the deal just to stop this so we can move on. I'm tired of all the legal fees. I'm sure hundreds of millions of dollars. So maybe he does it. But Trump, to his credit, is a fighter. I mean, he's been... He's been sued how many times before he doesn't deal. So I think it's going to go all the way to the to the end. I think it's going to be great for us on talk radio. Think of the the ratings. I mean, when you have, if, if Trump is going to testify or when they announce that the ver- the jury has reached a verdict, you, know, you got to push it back to 8 o'clock in, in prime time. The country will shut down. I mean, every television uh, is going to be tuned in. So it, it's, as a historian... <laughs> This is this is going to be our Watergate. This is going to be fascinating. So I hope it's televised. Should the trial be televised? I think yes. I, I think for both sides, this way nobody can say somebody had something uh, to hide. We kind of thought early on that maybe Trump and his lawyers would say, no, 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 we don't want it televised. Now maybe it might be the Democrats because now Trump can kind of litigate everything that might have been flawed or what was wrong. In twenty in the twenty twenty leg, and there might be some guys in white. Maybe let's not. Let's kind of keep this uh, under wraps. So, I I think we we have to. It's got to be television. Just it's, how awesome would and think about the spectacle. The former attorney general, the former vice president, testifying in open court against their boss, the former president. So, what, what do you make of? I mean, explain to me for in in your words. I mean, nobody knows the exact answer to this, but you talked a second ago about the forgotten man and woman. Uh, you know, yeah. the Trump has resonated with him for some sure. reason. You can say it's yeah. fraud. You can say that he's genuine. He means it, that there's a genuine connection they've made. Why, why do liberals hate Trump? <laughs> I mean, I've always wondered that. I mean, he's, he's not, he's a big spender. Yeah. I mean, he didn't try to balance the budget. I mean, he, he's, um, he, he's kind of a, um, he's, his domestic policy has tried to be friendly to the working yeah. class. Yeah. Why, why are liberals so, <sighs> opposed to anything Donald Trump stands for. Well, he was one of them for the longest of time. He Uh, probably is still one of them to some degree. Had he rode down that escalator and said, I'm running for president as a Democrat, who knows how different. But no, this sort of this this working class that Trump had tapped into, this had long been the key constituency group of the Democrats. Now, then they took them for granted. And then the trade deals under Clinton and the policies the environmental policies under Clinton, Obama, didn't help these individuals. You look back 1980, West Virginia voted for Jimmy Carter over Ronald Reagan. It tells you how strong the Democratic Party was in West Virginia. You look at the Democratic Party now in West Virginia, what are like two or three of them? I mean, this is the most, I mean, it was no accident, right, when Trump was saying, let's move it out of Washington and let's put it into West Virginia. I mean, it was no accident or no surprise that of all the states, uh, that's the one that he picked. So it's a, a, a solid uh, Trump state, not just a Republican, a solid uh, Trump state right now. And again, just Trump just, he saw something that a lot of 
political pundits didn't realize. He had his finger on the pulse, and he realized that the people were kind of fed up and sick of this. They were ready for somebody who thought outside of the box, and Trump was that guy. Credit to him. Well explained. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us and will be with us for another segment. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, kind enough to come on the show, puts his career at risk every <laughs> single Tuesday morning in the 8 o'clock hour. And, and I'll say this. I applaud a college professor willing to come no holes barred. I mean, I don't I don't text Bolt or, or email Bolt and say, yeah. hey, uh, you know, what do you want to make sure we don't talk about um, tomorrow? And, and I think, you know, um, accepting that is, is, is beneficial to not just academia, but our listenership as well. There are good people in all walks of life. What we tend to paint with broad brushes. I do that. I probably encourage people at times to paint with broad brushes, but I do want to, um, I want to talk over an issue with you and get your, and get your take on this. Um, the majority of Trump support is non-college educated. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're for whatever reason, uh, may not have been smart enough, may have been smart enough, family business, farm, yeah, you know, uh, kind of a passion for working the guy. And I don't know, uh, people follow their, uh, pursue their paths on their own different volitions and because it's what they choose to do. But but there's no doubt that Trump resonated with with voters who aren't college educated. Yeah. I've yeah. said before, and, and I want to be careful here, I've said before that society began at some point in time overvaluing a college education. A good friend of mine said, no, that's not true. We undervalue those that don't have a college degree. Um, I mean, I think history is important, and I'm not talking to you out of a job. I think, I mean, I, I do. I think that a, a kid, um, whether he's a game warden, whether he's a, a, a software programmer, whether he's a law enforcement officer, whether he's um, running IBM, I think having an understanding of the history of where you come from sure, is a fundamental, um, a fundamental, something important in all of our yeah. in all of our lives. I agree. But but what do you say to um? To, to, to my friend who said we undervalue those that don't have a college degree. Well, the arc of American history ever since post-World War II was you, you go to college. That's how you you want to be successful. You want to have the the house, the picket fence, the, the dog, right, the Norman Rockwell painting. This is sort of the the pathway, and it's sort of it's it's sort of trickled down that this was the the expectation. And if you don't do it, you're almost an iconoclast. You know, you, there, there's something wrong with you. What do you mean you're not? You don't want to go to. There's right so many other trades. Yeah, you know, under uh, underwater welder uh, makes a whole lot more money than I do. It's a very very dangerous job, but it, it's fulfilling. And so certainly right. And I'm not going to disparage somebody who doesn't want to go to college and they want to pursue a, a trade or a career. Of uh, there are a lot of jobs that probably that require a college education that, that maybe you don't need one. It's it's, it's good for my business uh, certainly. Uh, somebody takes a history course with me. I know the the large, large majority of people aren't going to be history majors. They're just taking because somebody told them they have to. They've got to check off a box. And I'm not I'm not going to jam up or have somebody get kicked out of the nursing program uh, just because they don't know when the War of 1812 started. You know, we can, you know, <laughs> if, if if they don't know, they, I'd rather them not struggle with the origins of the the Civil War. You know, if, if you're a nurse or a doctor and you think that there's uh, two livers and one kidney, that, that, that's a bigger problem. We've got in our hands. So again, come to my class. Ha- have a good time. You're going to learn some history. Smile, laugh at the jokes, and you'll be fine. What are the three or four relevant points of early American history 
that you think lead to a better populist. In other words, Jefferson believed in a well-rounded, well-educated um, public. He believed America would be better the more educated yeah. and better um, oh, studied sure. we were. Created the University of Virginia. That yeah. was one of the no he question put on about his tombstone. And then encouraged Thomas Sumter to have something to do with the University South of South Carolina. Yeah. So, but, but from your perspective, you just said, I mean, obviously there are going to be heightened interest levels. Some kids are really, really interested in history. Others want to put that check in the box. Exactly. You talked about. Yeah. But what three or four issues in early American history do you wish more young people took seriously? I wish they kind of went back and looked at Andrew Jackson of all people. They did, he's sort of uh, taken a bit of a hit lately. Hey, this is the, there's a lot of parallels, a lot of similarities between Andrew Jackson and, and Donald Trump. And you talk about Trump sort of going to clean the house if he gets back in. When Andrew Jackson became president, uh, a lot of office holders in Washington were terrified. Uh, several guys committed suicide so that Andrew Jackson couldn't fire them. So, and, and Democrats don't like to admit it, but the founder of the modern Democratic Party is Andrew Jackson, of all people. They kind of run away from their own, their own, they're scared of their own shadow, if you will. Oh, but certainly I think, and maybe where we are right now, we need to take a look at some of the events of the 1850s that led us to the Civil War. Uh, when we sort of made, we over-politicized the issue of slavery, made it into a, a much bigger deal than maybe it was, in which divided the country. We're probably at a point right now in America so divided that we haven't seen anything like this in our in our lifetimes. Anything, maybe not since right before the Civil War. So if we can kind of go back and kind of look at some of the mistakes that we made, and we get well, no, we're not on the precipice of of disunion and another civil war, but we do kind of need to find a way to kind of come together to try and find common ground. And remember, there's so much more that unites us than there is which divides us in this great country. Is it fair to say the Jeffersonian Hamiltonian debate kind of set us on our way? I mean, oh, th- th- there was a there was a very vigorous debate about the fundamental role of government. And it began mm-hmm. shortly after the Revolutionary War with Thomas yeah. Jefferson having one set of values and beliefs and, and, Hamilton, and Hamilton having another. No, I, I believe the entire scope, the arc of American history, you can trace it back. It's the first time Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton had dinner together. And we're still kind of continuing the same argument, uh, even to this day. Strong national government, interventionism, nationalism, states' rights. And a lot of things we're talking about right here, 2023, Jefferson and Hamilton were debating in the 1790s. So the more things change in American history, the more they stay the same. One of our, one of the, I guess, the great things about America is its um, inclusiveness. It's mm-hmm. welcoming people who don't look like us, don't sound sure. like us, don't act yeah. like us. And by us, I mean, you know, um, the, uh, I don't know, the, the, those who come from the original founders uh, of our nation. But, but do you sometimes worry? Uh, we talked about some of the struggles we had pre-Civil War, the way we overcame some of those post-Civil War, Lincoln's yeah. leadership. I mean, mm-hmm. we were able to heal and, and, and kind of move on. Do you worry at times, because I do, that this country has gotten so big and so diverse and so complicated and so multifaceted that we could end up like some of the European predecessors. We could eventually find some line of demarcation where you go your way and I go mine. As as, as, as a patriot, I, it, it's kind of tough to go down that route. I still like to think, and I'm probably just convincing myself, this, that our, our best days are ahead of us. But I've, there are storm clouds on the horizon. There are, there are things that give me give me pause, and I think we are at a bit of a a crossroads. And we need to kind of, especially our fiscal house, need to get some of these things 
in order. And if we don't, right, then, of course, we're, there's, we, we could see it would break my heart, the balkanization of the United States, which is sort of a breaking up into sort of regional separate uh, countries. If you know, Some people have kind of talked about that and proposed that. There's no support. There's not much support for it right now. But if you continue to kind of go down this path and we don't make a correction, then you could see something like that garnering uh, more support. And the Constitution is silent on the issue of secession. The Supreme Court said said no, but Supreme Court cases are open to relitigation. Do you believe there is a, a battle? And I mean, it's not as simple as this, but, but I'm not a professor. I'm not an academic, so I have to break things down uh, in simple terms. Do you believe there is um, kind of a fork in the road? And to yeah. one uh, way goes republic, and to one way goes empire. The empire. And, and America's struggling right now with whether it wants to maintain its status as an empire. And by that, I mean having so much influence right, in, 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 in places that we may or may not have our national security and interest. And those who say, no, let, let's, I mean, isn't that the crux of where right. we are today? Right, I, I, mean, tr- I, I doubt Trump would say, um, I'm here as an anti-imperialist. I'm here as, you know, but 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 I do believe that subconsciously we're having that debate with one another. I think that's what he wants, sort of, just to go back to the old Washington model. No entangling alliances. Let's just scale back. This is a way to, to save us lots and lots of money. And sort of the established class is going to say, well, no, we need to protect our interests overseas. We've got so much investments. We're multinational. We need to pro- sort of prop up some of these uh, these dictators and unsavory governments just to protect our bottom line. And Trump is saying, oh, the heck with that. No, you make a bad deal, then you got the right to, to fall flat on your face. And lots of Americans seem to are agreeing with President Trump that it's time to no, rethink our position in the world. And again, for our entire lifetimes, post-World War II, nobody challenged that. I said, well, yes, absolutely right. We have to be the world's policemen. And this is another reason why there are so many who dislike President Trump, because again, it's an, or- an orthodox position that he's adopted. Didn't our founders, by and large, warn us of the allure sure. of wanting yes. to become an empire? Yes, and exactly. It's small empires. What happens? They dissolve. They crumble. They they don't they don't make it across the finish line. And so again, that was their fear, right? Just right. Small, local. Keep to your own affairs. And then again, for the for the most part, until the start of the 20th century, we adhered to that. After World War II and the start of the Cold War, that we completely abandoned those philosophical ideas of the founders. That, that's very interesting, and and I, I've tried to read and research and study as much of that as I possibly can. What does it say to you? Last question sure. I'll ask, and I'd love to hear your Perfect. take on this. What does it say to you when the support Americans have of Ukraine are beginning to decline? I mean, I read a poll this yeah. morning, 55%, excuse me, 69% of conservatives People who identify as conservatives oppose what we're doing in Ukraine. 70% of liberals, people <laughs> who identify as liberals, support what yeah. we're doing in Ukraine. I mean, that, that's that's a paradigm shift, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's sort of, it's 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 a war backed by, by President Biden. So naturally, uh, the liberals, Democrats are going to have to kind of rally behind him and support him. But again, it's been going on and on. It looks like the people of Ukraine are, have weathered the storm. Now, I got to think that any moment, if Putin just wanted to take the other hand out in just overwhelming force and just put an end to it, he probably could. Who knows what, how many casualties and what that would do domestically at home in Russia, and then who knows what the response of the United States would be. 
Bennett's has been going on now for over well over a year. Look, there's an end in sight, and who knows how many more billions and billions of dollars we're going to have to funnel in there uh, to prop them up. What are we What are we going to get out of this? Just sticking it to Putin, is that enough uh, to spend all this money? And some Americans would say yes, others would say no. Do we have a call? We do. We have Joel calling from Mullins. Joel, you're on the air. Hey, Warner. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm a graduate of Francis Marion. I got a degree in history. Oh, good. All right. Uh, and uh, I got the best foundation, I think, have for the rest of my education to follow after that. Dr. Mullins, I was absolutely wonderful. I want oh, no, to ask sir. the doctor. Oh, yeah, she's great. Um, she's fine. I'll be sure to pass along your, your regards to her. I still see her, so yes, good to hear. Thank you. Thank you. I finished my four-year course in two years, um, and it was just great. But I wanted to ask you, Doctor, we, we see a lot of today um, things that are wrong, have taken a course, you know, our stage of the world, the like. Uh, I wonder, if we had stayed from the course of statehood, individual state sovereignty, still be in this mess. Things have been different for us if we step closer to the Constitution. No, it, it, it's an excellent... Uh, Thank you, Joel. Appreciate the call. Right, an excellent parlor game sort of debate. Yeah, it's a fun what if, and it's things I kind of think about as a long time, oftentimes, myself, and probably not, you know, if we had sort of kept to the, the Jeffersonian, Jackson model, very, very small, limited government. Again, all you need the national government for is simply to, to really carry the mail. Uh, that's certainly right. You wouldn't have it would it wouldn't have been possible to have a large empire like we have nowadays. And again, we could almost say that well, we're we're in this boat just because, as a matter of necessity, we kind of had to become the empire to kind of keep the Soviets in check to preserve freedom and democracy and to confront Nazi the Germany as way well, beforehand, absolutely for sure. And so again, this is sort of the the byproduct of it. We kept the world safe for democracy two times, but in the end, right, we sort of broke from our principles and our moorings uh, that had Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and many of the founders had established for us. Did Hamilton advocate for an empire? I mean, he advocated for a central Big, planner. Big, strong central government. Now, I think even Hamilton, that was probably a bridge too far uh, for him. And just realize, we we just didn't have the might and the resources at the time. Hamilton, had he lived maybe another 20, 30 years, uh, he might have gone down that road, but not while he was alive. But if we hadn't established an empire... Who would have confronted Nazi Germany? Oh, for sure, absolutely. I mean, and who I mean, knows, I'm being how, devil's different, advocate who knows how different world history would have been? And so, right, somebody was going to have to. And again, we you see, we can criticize President Roosevelt for some of his domestic policies. Roosevelt realized we were going to have to deal with Nazi Germany at one point when most of the country was still committed to isolationism. And this is probably FDR's greatest movement, getting the country ready, putting us on a war footing long before we got sucked into World War II. It's, it's presidential leadership convincing the public that we're going to have to deal with this and getting the public to go along with you. Few presidents have done such a thing as that. Very well explained. Dr. Bull, thank you for your time. As always, great stuff, guys. We'll thank you. take a break. A we'll be back in just a few moments. It's interesting to hear uh, an academic's take on some of these, and I think Bolt gets out there a little bit more than most professors probably um, would, and I think he's respected because of that. The one thing that I've argued, and I think I'll continue to argue, is the lack of debate. The lack of consequential disagreement about, you know, what, what, what Josh believes, what Dr. Bolt believes, what I believe. It really goes back to Larry's point earlier. The majority of us, and you said it better than anybody, Josh, the majority of us 
are afraid to be abrasive. We're right. afraid to be aggressively opinionated. We're afraid of um of you know where we stand socially or economically or man I don't want to put I don't want to say that because I'm not sure how my boss feels. I don't want to say that because I'm not sure how my supporters feel, my sponsors feel on the radio. And I just think the only way we save America, quote unquote, is to allow these debates that are essential to self-government to take place. You have every right to disagree with what I say. You have every right to believe a set of facts or data as as, uh, impaired or not uh, presented as accurate. I have every right to do the same. But my concern in America today, I mean, the experiment of self-government requires disagreement. It requires debate. It requires dialogue. It requires abrasiveness. Let's be honest. I mean, it's not going to be pretty all the time, but it seems to me that that the, uh, you know, we talked earlier about, is it Trump the idea or Trump the man? And I think Trump the idea is a manifestation of the lack of debate. The, the you know, the, um, the realities of the American working class not feeling like they had a forum of which to advocate how they felt they were being treated by their government. You know, the, the, the average American doesn't understand a lot about intervention or globalism or trade policy. They just know that they feel like they're losing ground. They, they feel like, you know, a $40,000 job 25 years ago, you know, making 80 today doesn't feel as prosperous as making 40 back then. I told my wife yesterday, we went and then helped my daughter finish moving in. She starts class next week, starts a bunch of sorority stuff. Um, this week, and, and we were talking about how much money she needs a week. You know, I mean, she's going to work a little bit at the Senate, and she'll, you know, we'll, we'll obviously have to support and, and, and do that. But, but I was thinking about, wow, I mean, when I was a kid, 40 bucks went a long way. And now it's just not because we were talking about what this costs, what a tank of gas costs, what a meal at Chick-fil-A cost, you know, what, what, what a movie and, and popcorn cost. And it's, 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 it's unbelievable. The expense, and, and I can really go back to the permanent expansion of money supply and, you know, macroeconomic stimulus and, you know, an irresponsible government diminishing the value of the dollar. I mean, my daughter doesn't want to hear that. She, does, she just knows that $40 ain't that much anymore. And when my parents gave me a couple of 20s, I mean, I, you know, I, I was like, okay, I'm set for a while. I mean, this doesn't get me to adulthood, but it gets me down the road further. And, and I just think that's, um, you know, the American working class, feel their purchasing power has been significantly diminished and, and people, you know, people who make the rules have forgotten about them and and whether it's genuine or not, whether it's sincere or not, I don't know. I mean, you know, we can debate that little cows come on. I don't know Trump's heart. I mean, I don't don't know that Trump's playing these people as many say, or if he's sincere, I don't, I don't have any idea. Um, I think I have credibility with that because I know where I come from. I mean, I know the first 50 years of my life was spent in small town USA, and I've watched opportunity dwindle, and I've watched livelihoods decimated by trade deals and, and big government policies and whatnot. I've watched government um, overvalue capital, undervalue labor, and, and we got to get that back in balance. I just saw a couple of um, Wall Street tycoons endorsing or trying to talk Glenn Youngkin into entering the equation. Well, I mean, if, you've, if, if, if GDP, if the country's GDP is finite, I mean, it's $25 trillion, That's a lot, but it's still finite. And you're going to try and create a, a political agenda that gets back into balance the valuation of capital and, and labor. 
and you've made your 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 living a, a wonderful living, house in the Hamptons helicopter kind of living off the overvalue of capital. I mean, aren't you nervous about Trump? I mean, I'm not saying you hate working people. I'm not saying you despise the average working class stiff, but but you've built quite the livelihood on the overvaluing of capital. And if we're going to try to rebalance, as J.D. Vance says, you know, this um this balance of um what what is capital worth and what is labor worth in a uh, in a private sector economy, I mean that 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 gets squishy. I mean that gets confusing if you're someone who has made enormous amounts of money by the government overvaluing finance and capital. So, I mean, it, this gets real in the weeds real quick. And I don't have any idea, once again, what Trump's sincerity is. I mean, I, I don't know if he's playing the working class Americans or if he's sincerely committed to try and create an agenda that does get that back in balance, that does get the, the valuation of capital and, and the valuation of labor in some, you know, reasonable balance. Take a break. Back in a few. I talk a lot on the show about the consulting class, the think tank class. I mean, having run for office in South Carolina, I understand the influence, uh, the sway that they at times have. Cato Institute, uh, when I do show prep, I very often go to the Cato Institute to see what they have to say about an issue at hand. And I understand some of the disagreements we have. I mean, I, I think you've got, got a liberal mindset, a conservative mindset, big government, small government. I've never been able to wrap my feeble brain around how people rationalize a reason with someone borrowing money to get an education, shirking that responsibility and believing it's okay, moral and ethical to shift that responsibility to somebody who didn't go to college, who didn't borrow any money, but the Biden administration has made that something they're sticking to their guns. I mean, they, they've tried a lot of different ways to not forgive student debt. I think they're changing the words now and just, um, you know, cancel student debt because debt doesn't get forgiven at least one column goes to another column in other words you know the person who didn't go to college is all of a sudden responsible for those who did go to college political analyst and host of the truth will set you free podcast anthony russo is with us anthony good morning how are you doing fantastic how are you so not only did the think tank think about things they filed a suit to block the biden administration's plan to cancel uh, what 40 billion ish in student loans what can you tell us about that yeah, I mean, a judge still needs to be the one to sign off on it. Uh, they essentially pled their case. Uh, I do believe a judge will pick it up. It shouldn't take very long. This is the exact same thing we talked about before. This is slightly different. These are uh, these are this this forgiveness, quote unquote, this cancellation is for borrowers that were almost done paying off their loans if they were at the tail end uh, of their, uh, I guess, their loan payments if they've been made twenty years of twenty five years or whatever it is. Because guess what? I, I we I think we know that student loans are egregious. They're a little bit ridiculous. But the fact is, they're a loan that we signed on the dotted line for. Uh, and the weird thing is, and I, I don't always um, I don't always take to to ultra conservative ways of looking at finances. But Dave Ramsey, who I respect but don't always appreciate, was talking about you know if this is such a problem, why are we looking at the past and not even discussing the future? Why have we not looked at the current state of of uh, student loans. Why have we not tried to fix that? Why have we not looked at the ridiculous cost of education? They don't want to. This is, like usual, their way of buying votes. That's what it seems like. But, but Anthony, and I, and I want to stay in that lane for a second because I think you're onto something here. We've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, there's no doubt the, the availability of government-secured loans led to price inflation in higher education, but there seems to be not a single voice I hear 
talking about how do we stop this from happening again? How do we stop $1.4 trillion in student debt from becoming $2.5 trillion in student debt? Um, are there any voices of reason out there um, saying, okay, we've screwed up in days gone by, but how do we make sure uh, we, we at least build a new model moving forward? No, I, that's a great question, and no, there isn't, because this is a, this is a fantastic political football that they're going to be able to use in 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years, whenever they want to have the exact same conversation. Uh, and at the same time, there's a lot of big money donors that are part of these university groups. They're also a part of the the groups that uh, that give out the loans, the Fannie Maxis. Uh, all, all these different groups all have a hand in lobbying the government, one of the, also the biggest problems with the way our government functions. So how can they damage those people? They don't want to. But what they want to do is pretend and virtue signal to the American voter that they want to do the best by them. And that's ultimately the problem, what we're looking at. We're looking at the pandering, and we're looking at the ability for the Department of Education to, to do what they did, which is come out and say, they're against working families. These groups are trying to go against working families that we are trying to help. This is another right. They called it a right-wing attack on working families. They're able to use this for the purposes of voting in a voting year. We're about a year away from the, and I, it sounds trite, but the biggest election in our lifetime uh, from a presidential perspective. And I, I just, there's, there's no other words can be used except for the fact that it is a gigantic political football that they don't want to fix the problem because they can't they've got too much money behind it but what they can do is use it for votes let let me ask you you said you don't subscribe to all the uber conservatives nor do i i mean i I would be right of center i'm not an ultra conservative i'm not guarding the right field flagpole but but i've often thought i'm not a member of congress i don't run a think tank but but you've got to get the university vested you've got to get the university with skin of the game so to speak in other words the university invites kid a and kid a doesn't have any business going to college and he borrows $60,000. $60,000. University has no skin in that game. Is that a reasonable proposition? I mean, if, if Anthony and Ken had a chance to kind of, you know, formit the starting blocks of where this debate starts, is one of the most important things forcing the university to have some, some skin in the game. Absolutely. I think having some kind of, I mean, there's accreditation. That's what we've done for decades or hundreds of years for universities are they accredited that that gives them a better standing that allows them um to get more students why don't we start tying some of the uh, accreditation to the, the student loans and what they're able to take let's also look at the fact that you know why isn't the government fighting against the interest rates i've also said this for a long time you know what if you want to forgive something you're not going to force the taxpayer to, to to do it but how about maybe say all right you guys have had predatory lending Let's go ahead and void the interest payments. Need to get paid back, but let's void some of the interest payments. No, they're they're directly trying to pass the debt onto taxpayers. They're trying to forgive everybody, which in the end just doesn't forgive the taxpayer that's paying for other people. So what what I would do from this point forward is look at the interest rates, look at the predatory interest rates, make sure it's separate from uh, federal government, uh, the federal government rates or the the Fed, however you want to call it. Obviously, that's not tied to each other. Um, and find something that is less predatory and also give an option. And I know this, this does make me sound a little bit more center or left, which I'm not. Um, and, but when I was saying conservative, I meant the Dave Ramses of the world. I still, you know, subscribe to conservative politics, but why, why do we not have more inexpensive collegiate options for those that really, really do want to go to college and can't afford it? And instead of them taking out hundred thousand dollars worth of loans to become a barista i think is the joke we all like to use at the end why not focus it on what the actual studies are cut the actual 
fat around these schools and say, why do you have the most random studies on the planet? Is there a purpose? Really make the universities look inside themselves and say, does this study actually lead there to future jobs? And if it doesn't, then it's a penalty of the school. There's a lot that needs to be done, uh, and it's going to be, and, and it would be something done to a lot of people that unfortunately have a lot of lobbying power in Washington. Interesting. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great day. That's kind of an interesting, and, and we get we get we get obsessed with that from time to time. Student debt, student lending, the number of kids going to college. Uh, Dr. Will Bolt was here in the last hour, and he and I were talking off the air. The one thing I'll, I mean, I, you know, I criticize higher education, and I think it deserves to be criticized. I mean, business deserves to be criticized. There are no public, excuse me, there are no perfect universities, private or public. There are no perfect businesses. I mean, the the, the, the hyper capitalist likes to look at universities. And they're, you know, uh, or government agencies in general and say they waste a lot of money. Well, but I mean, business wastes money. But there is no perfect business. Um, I mean, business is held accountable to a much higher degree than uh, the public sector. That's always been my complaint. I've never argued that businesses are run, you know, more perfectly than government agencies. I've always argued that businesses answer to being imperfectly run. I mean, if businesses are unbelievably inefficient, they go out of business. If government agencies are run unbelievably inefficient, uh, they just get a bump in and what their budget is, and that's just unfortunate. But uh, but you know, and and I, I know at times I sound like I'm anti higher education. I'm absolutely not anti higher education. I think these are legitimate points that I raise. Why are we lending a kid the same amount of money to get a degree in Greek literature as we do to get one in petroleum engineering? Why are we lending the same amount of money to a kid to get a degree in um, Shakespearean theater as we do for one to get a, uh, you know, a business degree? We shouldn't. I mean, it's absurd. And, and I, you know, well, those programs would shut down. Those professors would lose tenure and have to find something else to do. So, I mean, that's the way the, the market realities have to come into play in both the public and private sector to some degree. I'll accept that government's inefficient. I mean, it's inefficient whether a Republican or a Democrat runs it. I'll accept that. It's uh, it's it's cumbersome. It's clumsy. It's it gets in its own way. I mean, I'll accept that, but but I can't accept what we've allowed to happen in higher education. Uh, you know, the uh, the 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 grade inflation or the degree inflation, the amount of money it costs for a family to send a kid off to Clemson or South Carolina. I mean, it, it, the absurdity of that cost is. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, and it and it hinders the economic potential of that kid. That kid has a house payment before they have a house, you know, in, in student debt, in student loans. And I just think there's got to be some addressing of that. But but I think Anthony made valid points. You know, there, there are people making unbelievable amounts of money in student debt. And the refinancing and financing of student debt, I think you've got to get the university invested. You've got to find some way that the university has skin in the game. We got too many kids going to college. We got too many universities. I'll give you an example. Bolt was here a second ago. I, I want to give Francis Marion a lot of credit. You know what Francis Marion has done recently in the last ten or twelve years? Francis Marion has in has developed degrees that are commiserate with its local economy. I mean, obviously it's a liberal arts college, and they have programs that I'm going like, well, I don't have any. But anyway, um, businesses have employees. I don't know if we, you know. But anyway. Um, my, my dad said one day, I, I was complaining about the paint shop. Uh, the employees at the paint shop, I didn't think were up to snuff. I mean, I just didn't. I went to my dad and I said, hey, we can do better. I mean, you know, we got 12 people in the paint shop. You know, six are okay, six up. 
Um, I, I'm, I'm going to do something about this. My dad said, and I quote, you going to paint them beds? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? You run six of them all. Well, I mean, what you going to go back there and paint the truck beds that six of your subpar employees are painting? So businesses have their inefficiencies. Businesses are not perfect. Um, capitalism makes them answer to, to those imperfections and inefficiencies. But, um, but in government, for some reason, it, they're a bit insulated from some of these realities. But Francis Marion University made a commitment um, to provide programs that lead to jobs in healthcare. You got two big hospitals in our area, and they need employees. So Francis Marion said, if we're going to, you know, offer different degrees, maybe we discontinue these three degrees because they're kind of sort of dying on the vine, and we provide opportunities for these three um, degrees, and they're all in the healthcare industry. And you know, th- th- there's a market here. But there are a lot of jobs in Florence that require some understanding and education in healthcare. So I applaud um, universities like that who do things um, like that. Uh, my daughter is a rising junior at the Darlemore School of Business. Um, I mean, they, they made a deal. The, the, the lady who gave all the money to fund the creation of the, the business school said, if it fails to meet this criteria, don't come ask me for more money. In other words, it's got to be regarded as one of the, I think, 20 or 25 highest rated business schools in America, or certain things happen to certain members of the faculty and certain members of the administration. I mean, that's kind of an incorporation of private sector beliefs and values. I mean, th- th- those would be two examples of what I'd consider, you know, um, trying to address some of the inefficiencies of the, of the public sector. And you're not going to get it exact. I mean, I accept that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fairly conservative Republican. I'll accept the government's not that efficient when Republicans are in charge. But but I think you've got to try and address some of the inefficiencies as directly as you possibly can. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We got Breeze. Breeze, you're on the air. Hey, what's up, guys? Oh, a lot of Trump supporters have their head to say it, I believe. Yeah, I was telling one of my clients. He's very educated, but he uh, does the clueless of politics. I said, you do realize that there's got to be a better than 50% chance, maybe even 100% chance, that Donald Trump will be convicted in Washington, D.C. and will be put in prison. I said, you do realize that, right? And he looked at me and kind of chuckled with disbelief. You can see his brain was working, and he had never, ever considered the possibility that Trump would be in prison. And then what happens when he's in prison? The, the governor of New York start to pardon him. Joe Biden's not going to do, do anything. The only person they can pardon him is the governor of New York. What, does the spring, what, is, what, what is the option once he is in jail? I, I don't know if there is one. And the next thing I wondered is, is you have to think that somebody in Trump's inner circle has got to have the courage to say, Donald, you're going to jail, buddy. What's the plan? And it is, it is their plan. But I'll just be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, we talked this morning, and Josh did a great job of elaborating on Trump the man. I mean, Trump the man is unbelievably imperfect. Uh, imagine that. I mean, uh, you know, a man in the flesh being imperfect. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. The argument I tried to make, Josh, to Breeze's point is Trump is more than a man. Right. He's, he's an idea. He, he's, a, he's a fork in the road, and one fork goes this way, continuing business as usual. 
um, I like to say empire building and democracy exporting and, you know, forcing your views and values on the rest of the world. I'm not saying in the name of, uh, of mean and evil and wicked. I mean, I've, I've always said, you know, you got this linear graph, uh, America good, America bad. I think America largely has been a force of good in the world. I think we really and truly have been a force of good, but we've not, we've abandoned the concept of what a republic does. Uh, a republic serves its local constituency, and that is we the people, not we the people of the world, we the people of the United States. And I believe the day Donald Trump said emphatically, I've got no desire to be president of the world, what was the day that the cathedral made its mind up that this guy's a legitimate threat, he could inspire some of our underclass to to create a movement that may threaten or diminish the the empire. And, I mean, you know, I understand that you can't say that anywhere except talk radio. I mean, I understand if you wrote that for the New York Times, they'd, they'd say, hell no, we can't put that on the pages. If you wrote it for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, if you went to NBC or CBS or ABC News, they're not going to let that sort of a, a propaganda over the airway. So I understand that when I say these things, it's a little bit out of the mainstream. But I think Trump the man is, is, is once again, I mean, he's the, um, he's the symbol of the movement. He's the symbol of the idea, the idea that government has not been fair to its people. The government has picked winners and losers. Corporate, corporatism replaced capitalism. Um, you know, China was legitimized by the U.S. in 2001 as a member of the World Trade Organization. We've, we've, uh, we've farmed out our energy production. We farmed out our manufacturing capacities, and that diminished the value of uh, the average American. And, and we go back to, you know, worker productivity or capital. And I think we've overvalued. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking a long time to get where Breeze said. The only way you extinguish that energy is to kill its, I mean, you cut the head off the snake. And I think yeah. if you leave Trump on the, let's say Trump doesn't win the presidency. I mean, I think there's a 50-50 chance he wins, but let's say he doesn't. D -d Does Trump go on the circuit tour? Does he start a super PAC? Does he go on Twitter with a, does he start, start a, um, Bongino's not going to do his radio show until you. Does Trump do the 12 to 3, you know, radio show and, and continue to enthusiastically support this movement, I think the, the the way to end the movement they believe is to put him in prison. Kahaley told me that eight weeks ago. Robert, you're crazy. Stop. But that's not. I can't even say that on the radio. And and he explained to me why he believes once again. You know, Trump is a man in a moment of time that that is a bit. I mean, it, we use populism, but it's just revolutionary. I mean, we're living in the middle of a revolutionary period in American politics. And I think the reason is the forgotten man and woman have woken up. And they sense a, you know, uh, not, not a savior. I mean, that's goofy when you say Trump's a savior. I've heard that said. I mean, that, that's weird. I mean, Jesus is my savior. Trump is my fearless leader. I mean, Trump, Trump, you know, once again, we talked about what you can say, what you can't say, what you can do, what you can't do. He's done and said things you, 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 you know, we've been, Condition to believe you can't, you can't say that, can't do that, and get elected. What well, he did, but 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 once again, Josh, he, he's an idea. He, he's an idea that says, you know, we're going to return the country back to being a republic instead of an empire. 
where people have got unbelievably wealthy feeding at the trough of that empire. And when there's that much at stake, you go to the extreme. And the most extreme thing you can do with Trump today other than kill him is to put him in prison. And that's exactly what the never-Trumpers and the coastal elites would like to see. That They love to see Donald Trump walk, handcuffed, uh, mugshot, and put in prison, serve three squares a day, well, you know, probably be a minimum security. I mean, I'm telling you, that is what the left, the coastal elites, and the imperialists would love to see happen. Take a break. Back in a few. See, and I think David Brooks, I mean, I think he's on to what we're talking about today, that, that, that Trump the man is this big. Trump the idea is, is much bigger. I read an article yesterday, Josh, and I want to get your take on this. Okay. Uh, and we got a call. We'll get there in two seconds. But I read an article yesterday in the American Conservative that talked about, you know, David Brooks, very self-reflective, introspective, self-aware um, piece that he wrote for the New York Times but but the, the the writer for the American conservative is basically saying that the the, the only fallacy about Brooks's assertion is that populism is for losers. I, I don't buy that. I mean, populism is. I mean, it, it it's it, it's fundamental to politics. It's energy. It's emotion. It's commitment. Conviction. Uh, it's not just right wing extremism. It's not just left wing extremism. The populist in America today are not, well, I mean, maybe they're anxious and aggrieved. I mean, maybe they feel left behind. We talked a lot about the American working class and the overvaluing of capital, the undervaluing of labor. Uh, maybe that's a big part of this. But but I just think the Trump voter wants the country to work. Right. Just just work. Um, and, and they feel... I mean, I, I don't want a simpler time. I'm not nostalgic about, wow, man, I remember the day you didn't lock your house and the movies only cost 50 cents. I mean, I, I'm not stupid. Those days are gone. But yeah. I want the country to work. I wanted to work for liberals. I wanted to work con- for conservatives. I wanted to work for Republicans. I wanted to work for them. And right now, the damn country's working for a select few. And it's not working for the majority of Americans. If the country were working for the majority of Americans, Donald Trump would have got 3% of the Republican primary and laughed off the stage. People were yearning for something that said that to them. I'm not crazy. The country's not working for me. You know, I, I, I made $40,000 a year 20 years ago. I'm making 90 today, and I'm broker now than I was then. All the jobs are in China. All the energy is being produced by Saudi Arabia and, and Russia and some of these um, mortal foes of the good old U.S. of A. That's not ideological. I don't know how liberals are so – I mean, I understand the animus toward Trump. I mean, he's an easy guy not to like. I get that. I totally understand that. But, but the concept of, you know, make America great again, put America first – I mean, I, I, I get how somebody could say, yeah, but man, if you're not careful, that leads into isolationism. I mean, that, that leads into, you know, uh, totalitarian. I understand that, and I accept that as part of the debate. But, but I, I just think the idea is let's get the country working um, constructively on behalf of its people again. Right, and it's like, you know, when it comes to Trump, Trump is a complex issue. I think, you know, like we said earlier, people like his abrasiveness, but that is – still just only a part of it. I mean, you know, like liberals will point out, well, you Christians, you know, he he likes supposedly likes to get peed on by Russian prostitutes. I'm not crazy about that, but he is representative of what I believe generally. You know, like 
I disagree with that kind of behavior, but ultimately politics is phony, and he's going in there and saying it's phony. You remember the statistic on Rush Limbaugh? 30% of his daily listeners wish he wasn't on the radio. Right. (laughs) 30% of the Trump voters don't like him at all. They just, once again, they want the country to work, and they believe he's the most valid choice to kind of shake things up I mean, they don't trust the people in charge now to ever get the country uh, back to where it works for the majority of Americans. So let's try this guy. I mean, you know, maybe he doesn't get it back on track, but but he'll make it a lot of fun, you know, as we um I, I pursue a better a better America. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jeff from Florence. Jeff, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, just just real quick, uh, you know, uh, Republicans want Americans to work. The unemployment rate—is it good or bad? Oh, the workforce workforce participation rate is terrible. It, it's terrible. Really. It's about fifty-nine percent, sixty percent, sixty percent of working eligible age Americans are working. Forty percent are so, not. The unemployment rate amongst African American young men between eighteen and thirty years old is about fifty percent. And you're saying three years ago it was better? No, no, I'm not saying it's better. No, I'm certainly not. I'm not blaming Biden for the situation we're in today. I think that would be unbelievably unfair to Biden. Right. And, and, you know, because let's be honest, the presidents don't really, uh, I mean, their policy does matter. But when you talk about this, let's get America back to work and let's get in energy. Do you see energy as we're not, I mean, do you think America is energy independent? I think we could be. But no, no, I, I don't we think. Export. Yeah, well, I mean, we did. We're, we're importing a lot of energy now from the Middle East. We've been importing. We import from Mexico. Okay, but Canada. why? Why are we exporting? I, I mean, I understand energy trades. I understand the value of a dollar. I understand, you know, um, Russia selling energy to China right now at a thirty percent haircut. So, so yeah. the biggest winner in the Russian embargo is China. Our, our. I mean, I think you and I would agree. Probably not on much, but we would agree right now. China is our number one geopolitical adversary. China is uh, China is absolutely. powering their economy with about a thirty percent haircut on energy right now. That, their their economy is going to it's crumbling. It is it is, they're going to see a devastation uh, like we saw. Uh, they're 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 about to have a uh, reckoning of. All this um, building with no demand. Well, building with no so, demand and the one-child policy for so long. Right. So I'm, I'm not, you know, China's economy, we do fuel that. Um, we, you know, we are onshoring a lot of stuff. Uh, chip manufacturing, job creation in the U.S., batteries uh, manufacturing, ammonia, chemical plants. Chinese companies are building plants in the United States. You know, so we're we're in a, in a, on a good footing economically. I I, I disagree with that, Jeff. I think we're in a very. I, I think we're in an in an absolute atrocious position economically. We we have an inflation issue for sure, and and the way the Fed's trying to fight it is not really a good way to fight it. Well, and our debt service um, is a trillion dollars a year. Yeah, I, I again, like you know, this is one of those things where I'm I'm not going to blame President. Uh, Trump, I, like Ron DeSantis. No, I, I'm not blaming anybody. For, <laughs> I think there's plenty of blame. Here are my major dr- We don't manufacture and we need to. We could we produce do. more energy we, than we, we can. Let, let me finish and I'll give you the floor. Sure. We're not willing 
to, to, to address entitlements. You know as well as I do that the driver of the debt is Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid. We have shown no willingness by either party to address those. We, we, we fundamentally must do something in regards to that or we're going to create a debt bubble and a number somewhere out there somewhere will cause our economy to, to be permanently impaired. Absolutely. And can I just, I'm, I'm not trying to, what have the Republicans done? Nothing. Have Zero. Have anything? So, so why would, let me, I don't, I don't, I mean, you asked me a lot of questions, but I want to get your take on this because yeah. I'd be very interested. I think our listeners would be interested in your take. Is Trump more than a political figure? Does he represent an idea? I'm not saying he's Jefferson or Hamilton. I'm not arguing that. I'm not, there's some enduring intellectual political philosophy, you know, that, that will set the table for days to come. But would you agree that Trump is more than a political figure, but rather a, a representation of an idea that America stopped working and we got to figure out a way to get the train back on the track? I'm not saying whether you agree with that or not, but would you yeah. agree that, that a lot of Americans believe that? A lot of Americans do believe that. Why do and, they believe that, Jeff? That's my thought. Why do I'll, they I'll believe just, that? I, I will, because, and, and you know, when, when people, uh, the American dream becomes unattainable, that it, even with two parents working, you know, you can't keep up. Um, that's where we were. We were there. Uh, we had some relative prosperity in the 90s. Um, the 2000s, 2001. 2008, uh, we've had some massive uh, COVID setbacks for the country. Trump tapped into a bunch of people. Um, and, and, and do I think that Trump recognized it? No. Trump says things, and when he sees a uptick in the cheers, he doubles down. I don't think he's got the intellectual um, philosophy that you think he does. I think he's reactionary. I think he's uh, an instinct animal. He says this about himself. No, I've said before, I've said before the concern I have with Trump is whether or not he has the intellectual curiosity to try and pursue formidable. I mean, I, I think he gets what he's tapped into. I mean, I think he's well aware. We say he stumbled onto it or whatever, but I think he's well aware uh, what he's tapped into. Does he have the intellectual curiosity to explore what some of the answers are, I've always been concerned about that. That's why I think somebody like J.D. Vance would, would be a, a better carrier of the next wave of America First if it has a next wave. I mean, it may die on the vine you, here. You, J.D. Vance is like the character from Stephen King's The Dead Zone. He'll do anything to get elected. I disagree with that. I he think J.D. Vance is one of the most – I think he's one of the brightest – No moral um, I think he's one of the brightest – uh, realignment or I, I mean if if we are if america first is to have sustaining success jd vance will be one of the leaders of the movement one year before that he was a democrat bashing trump well, I, mean, I, I get I that mean, i mean i understand that I, i'm not talking about where he was and where he's been and what he said i mean trump's a liberal democrat why don't you love trump trump is not a liberal trump democrat. has spent most trump of his life is. as a liberal democrat Trump is never been uh, like Trump doesn't care. Trump is his own unique animal. And I'm going to say this. If you want to see what Donald Trump is and everything you despise about Barack Obama, they're the same thing. No, Obama has an ideological core. Obama is a radical liberal. What, what did he stand for? Who? What did, 
what was his big uh, Obama? Like he just stumbled into the presidency. Uh, kind of. What did he? What he, he was? Win. He was not vetted. I mean, he was not. No, no, no member of the he media. Wasn't ready? What he, he wasn't vetted. He wasn't an effective president. Nah, I would say he was an effective president. What, really? Yes, uh, of course. What, I mean, look, look where the country is today. Mind? Look how far the country has gone left since Barack Obama was named president. I mean, I think Obama is a radical activist. Okay, let me ask you a question. You say the country's left. What do the courts look like today? Let me hit the Supreme Court. I mean, that's kind of look. That's, that, that's Ruth Bader wrong. Ginsburg <laughs> dies, unfortunately, for Democrats. Trump gets a chance to put a conservative. I mean, most presidents get, what, one, maybe two. Trump got three. I, I would agree. I would agree there's no doubt that the time spent in the White House in relation to the influence on the Supreme Court, Trump was lucky. I mean, there's no doubt about that. He was extremely fortunate to have, I mean, I hate to say this, but but Ruth Bader Ginsburg pass away and him be able to get, you know, had a majority of the Senate. And, okay, I, I'll give you that. But but that's the and, only and thing about America. That, it's, it's not just there. Go look at the courts in general. But, I mean, we're, we're talking about the mindset of average Americans. I mean, the mindset of average Americans, we're talking about eight-year-olds having medical procedures without parental consent. I mean, what we're talking about, I mean, we, we blunt, the, the most offended issue in America should be same-sex marriage. I mean, it, it, it's so, I mean, it, we, we've we gone so far past Roe that. Well, I mean, that's we the Supreme Court. And, 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 no, and we're arguing that, that Republicans are going to pay a price at the polls because, you know, they, they've gained control of the issue again. I mean, I understand what uh, you're saying about the court. I don't deny the court's more conservative now than it's ever been. I don't know about ever, but in my lifetime, obviously. But the American public are, are more accepting of a liberal activist agenda than they ever have been. But after Obama, have gun regulations gotten stronger or weaker? The, I'm, you're talking about laws. I'm talking about the mindset of the public. I'm talking about public I, opinion. They vote. I mean, like every in, in state legislatures across the country. But, but once again, you're talking about the body politic. You're talking about laws and legal. I'm talking about the mindset of the average. I mean, I read public opinion polling. We are a much more liberal country today than we were prior to Barack Obama becoming president. Jeff, we got to take a break. You know I enjoy it. I always enjoy it. But we got to pay. I like to pay bills more than I do arguing with Jeff about how liberal the country's become. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Having some technical difficulties with my screen here. I got some, uh oh, some serious tape going on down here at the bottom. <laughs> got it patched up and and taped up, but it's holding up just fine. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. All right, we got Mike in Darlington. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, it was all. It's always a pleasure to hear uh, hear Jeff's uh, rhetorical questions, but uh, the. The situation is it's it's more basic than this. It's not academic, really. Uh, when uh, back in the early '60s, you get you could get a job and work in the mill or whatever for a dollar an hour, and uh, maybe a little bit more, and take home forty dollars a week, and that would buy you at twenty-five cents a gallon, which was the price of gas back then. Uh, uh, about a uh, hundred and sixty gallons, I believe, a hundred and sixty gallons of gas. And uh, now you work for fifteen dollars an hour, say, and uh, you get maybe eighteen gallons of gas. Uh, that's what's happened because the work week 
is still 40 hours. If you could get 40 hours, they don't want to give 40 hours if you're industrious, and no one wants to work overtime anymore, it seems. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I mean, just fundamental argument is we're, we're exporting energy. The economy's good. Unemployment's fine. Uh, yeah, we got these couple of issues out there that we need to deal with, the debt, the entitlement. The country's broken. I mean, I, you know, I know, I know who makes the country go. I'm not an elite. I, I'm not. I mean, I, I've seen the elite. I mean, I guess that's the confusing part of my life. I've kind of got a foot in both camps. But, but the country's broken. I mean, the country's not working for the average American. It's just not. I'm sorry. Um, we were talking about, you know, t- a couple of minutes ago, um, you know, my, my wife lived at the beach her junior year, sophomore year in high school. They rented a house. You know, the uh, five girls went together and pitched in X number of dollars, and they worked at restaurants that summer. I mean, do you really believe that sort of dynamic is attainable today? I mean, the, the, the and, I, and I, I go back to, I mean, if somebody said, what's wrong with the nation in one sentence? I mean, it's not that simple. But, but if somebody said, no, you only got one sentence, the permanent expansion of money supply. That's what's happened to America. Now, now once again, um, Mike said it's simple. But, yeah, that's simple. The permanent expansion of money supply led to rampant inflation, which led to a decimating of the value of the dollar you earn when you are a productive member of our economy. But the, the, the cost to build the empire, it required the overcompensating of capital. It required certain sectors of the economy gaining certain advantages over certain other sectors. Lobbying was a big part of that. Influencing the government to do X, Y, or Z was a big part of that. Now, now, now it gets real complicated after that. I don't profess to have the answer. But if someone said fundamentally, you know, forget social issues and cultural issues and how we've evolved on abortion and gay marriage and now transgenderism. What has changed the, the, the plot of the average American family? The permanent expansion of our money supply has led to rampant inflation and people realized that 40 grand a year, you know, 30 years ago, they're, they're making 80 grand a year and they're far broker than they were when they made 40. That That's where... I mean, if you want to know where it all, where the epicenter of the um, the idea, Josh, of Donald Trump, I mean, that's the idea. That that's the concept. That's now. Now, where do you go from there? A hundred people have a hundred different opinions. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.